Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1604 to 1617, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1604, story number one, Death World Veterans, written by Speedhump23. At a post-battle dinner. The leaders of the attacking armies of Tarita, too, were catching up over some fried tubers and watered-down distilled liquids. The generals were debriefing each other over the different unit performances from the recent attempt to subjugate RIS-455, trying to see what went wrong. W-455 was a small agri-world, ripe for conquest. They had no standing army and only grew plants and consignments for other races. There was something about the light from their binary system that made crops grow fast and healthy. Southern Battle Group had some of the new mercs from the Death World Poply 5. Their insectoid killers were born fighting their environment, given battle armor. They performed rather well. Until uh, Battle Group North had two detachments of Mechie units from Iron Reigns, an established merc group trained on some of the harshest Death Worlds in the sector. Their armor could crush any opposition in days. Until, that is. The general from the battle center group lumped in late. His legions of feline dragons had cleaned up most of the planet in the sector, and would have won the day on Russ 455 until their losses were absolute. They had not even made it to the surface, and the general's craft had only survived because he was leading from the rear. The plan was tried and true declare the invasion, demand total surrender, and endure a token 13% population reduction, with the remaining natives turned into bonded slaves. Simply, until, that is, the natives said no. No one said no nowadays. The results of saying no was total reduction of population. So be it. The traditional two weeks' notice of extermination had been filed, and then, two weeks later, the next step was to capture the three main spaceports using the mercenaries, cleanse the indigenous populations from the nearby major cities, and then follow up with the rest of them. The generals regretted the cost of the extra ammunition involved with reducing the entire population, but no one said no to them until now. Two weeks had seen the natives scrape together a defense no one in the trip saw coming, and they had not done it alone. If the reports were to be believed, a small group of Terrans had helped defend the planet. The combined mercenary army had entered orbit, started to deploy to the three main spaceport zones, and died in flames and explosions. It did not make sense. All of the initial intelligence said that no external force was going to aid the natives of RIS-455. They simply did not have the funds to pay for an army of the size suitable to withstand the combined Merc force. The guards came into the mess room and ordered the generals back to their cells. They were being treated well, as integral law dictated, allowed to meet for mid-meals and speak freely. Even their wounds were being treated, following the standard conditions for such a hostile takeover failing. The surviving Merc units, which had taken part of the ill-fated attack, were now the property of RIS-455's government and would have to serve them for the next two standard generations. News was, they were already being trained in crop tending. 
The generals who had tried to capture the planet were being returned to their homeworld permanently. Losing a sanctioned and declared war of conquest when there were the attackers was very embarrassing. The generals would be retired with full military pensions and then allowed to live out the rest of their days on their home planet. As the threat to planetary government had declared the war, they would be required to pay retribution to RIS-455 or surrender their home world to the victors. Luckily, while the government of Tractor II, the RIS government were not making any extreme claims. The standard non-aggression pact for ten standard generations had been filed before the generals had left for home on the tribunal's guardship. The general of the Northern Falls sat down in his cabin and asked the guard, a Terran marine, if he was a member of one of the units who had helped defend RIS-455. The Terran smiled. No, sir. He was employed by the Galactic Tribunal. The Terran Marines were the units of choice for those who could afford them. Growing up on a death world where they had been fighting amongst themselves for most of their history had bred the best warriors in the galaxy. The guard laughed and pointed out that no Terran Marine units had been involved, just a small team of mirror salesmen from down under. Hold on, the general said. Are not the Terran Marines the best fighting force in the galaxy? What unit of Terrans would have taken part with such great skills if not for the Terran Marines? Showing the general his datapad, the Terran Marine pulled out images of great forests of trees. The trees were about 40 meters tall and all had olive green slash gray leaves. See, these trees, they are gum trees. The Rus 455 crops are paid a pretty dollar per ton for their leaves. Why? Are they edible for humans or medicinal in nature? Not in the slightest. In fact, the only animal in the galaxy that can eat them are about 30 to 40 centimeters tall and sleep most of the day. I don't understand. You said that they are not edible, but some small animal does. Yes, sir. Believe me, we don't get it either. It was all over the local news nets last month. The Aussies had decided to sell RIS-455 agro companies to the latest in Terran solar mirror technology. These mirrors would allow the W-455 AgriCorps to increase yields in their crops by a significant magnitude, and the deal was to discount the leaf production for a few years. Your takeover was declared just as the Aussies had deployed their solar mirrors and were on ground setting up the control sites. If you had attacked straight away, you would have won but you gave them two weeks to position the existing mirrors and deploy even more of them from their stockpiles. Your Merc troop ships were then trying to make planet fall while being sliced apart by reflected sunlight laser beams of such immense power that it is amazing any of your ships survived to crash land. A rather brilliant idea, if I do say so, but I hear that the lead technician is crediting an old sci-fi book he read a few years ago for the idea. The general looked at the guard with a puzzled look. You mean that they were not Terran Marines? Who were they then? Let me spell it out. You all think Terrans grew up in a death world. That sounds scary. But in truth, we actually rather like the place in most cases. I grew up in the UK, where we like Marine service. Because it gets us away from the fog and rain. But you pissed off a group of people who live in a part of the world that we all consider to be the most deadly place on our planet. Think about it. We think their country is death world compared to ours, and you pissed them off by declaring war on the only other place in the galaxy that can grow food for one of their national icons. End of story. 
Story number two. Merchant Ship, written by Brew Fucker. Something's unknown about humans. The first was that they were very fond of big spacecraft. Most spacecraft are between 300 meters and 500 meters. Human spacecraft are between 1 kilometer to 40 kilometers. At least, that's what the reports say. Second, is that piracy is not common in human space or in trade routes, and they do not use the services of any Galactic Federation companies that provide the transport security service. So when we got news that the human spacecraft would dock at our station, we were happy because it was the first time many of us had seen one of their spacecraft. Before the human spacecraft had left subspace, we received a transmission asking for the exact orientation of our position in relation to the planet's gravity well, and if any objects were in orbit between the two bodies. Since we are the only thing between the planet, we gave them our position. Then the subspace window opens and the ship begins to cross, very slowly. When our sensors were able to pick it up, we were surprised by the 1.5 kilometer long and 300 meter high spacecraft, armor so thick that our sensors couldn't detect even a sign of life. Dozens of plasma cannons lined up on the sides. In front and back were a huge warship where Aurora was the name of the ship. Our station was big, but not big enough for a direct docking. So they moved their ship into a close orbit and a smaller ship made the trip to us. As a station administrator, I was there when the captain entered our station. Captain Broderick was his name. He stated, as many routes are being attacked by piracy, humans and many governments decided that our station would be used as a main point of trade. Humans would bring the goods here, and other species would take them from here to whatever they wanted with the Federation escort. So I asked when the first shipment would arrive so that we could get ready. Our little ship will be the first. It was strange that they would ship goods in a warship. But not unheard of. No, Captain. When a civilian ship will take this route, I asked. I think there is a misunderstanding. My ship is a civilian ship. So you're saying the 24 plasma cannons on each side, five in the front, five in the back, and the dozen point defense weapons are just one civilian ship? Yes, Mine is just a small merchant ship. Uh, those cannons are for defense only. If that was the defense of a small merchant ship, what was the defense of a warship? I dared ask. Well, uh, it was a long time ago when I was in the Navy, but uh, our ship would be considered the size of a small frigate in our Navy, but with half the guns. And in a battle group, there are destroyers, cruisers, and carriers, planes five times bigger than ours. And uh, there are, of course, our cruise ships that are even seven times bigger than our ship, and the planet crackers that I didn't even know how big they are. Planet crackers? When their need arises to break a planet, you don't want to invent a new class of ships, so we just built a few of them, you know, just in case. Uh, we found them to be very useful in mining operations. That night, I still had a few moments with the human captain and asked when the humans decided to put so many weapons on a merchant ship. Ah, you see, uh, my spaceship is named after one that sailed the seas of our home planet many centuries ago. In fact, one of my great-great-grandfathers owned that ship. 
Even back then, we understood the need that our ships were protected from pirates and enemy factions. We only apply the same logic in space. After we discovered space piracy, it didn't take long for our prudence to pay off. It made me understand two things. Why humans don't have a problem with piracy is because no pirate would be crazy enough to face a ship this big with weapons most cruisers don't have. And second, because the other species requested a neutral port, who would want a merchant ship with the power of an armada delivering goods to their planet? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1605. Story number two. Hair is Weird. Written by Marilyn of Manny. The little alien clicked his beak for attention and raised his drink. New one, he announced. What's something that most people don't know about you? I'll go first. He passed the horn cup to a fruity whatever between his four hands while he told the table full of co-workers a secret. The firstborn in his clutch of siblings had died in the egg, and he should have been the secondus, not the primus. My parents decided that it was best to pretend that it was the quartus that had died, and bump the rest of us forward. He looked down at the table, his head pulled back towards the shell like he was worried that they would judge him harshly. But of course, we didn't. The other turtillos had all comforting things to say, and we drank a toast to his parents' decision. I raised my own cup and non-alcoholic juice with the rest of them, trying not to elbow anyone in the ear with my long human limbs. There would be no alcohol for me here, as one of the few representatives of my entire planet. That was okay with me. The juice tasted better anyway. The next speaker was a little female who had joined us recently from a different city. She pointed out a chunk of missing shell that everyone pretended not to have noticed. What I had guessed to be a hovercraft accident or a childhood tumble turned out to be a battle scar from a heroic moment when she faced down a sizable predator to save her neighbor's pet. That's what started me on the path of animal care, she said. There was a hearty round of applause. I clapped, too, quietly so that not to put anyone off with the slapping sound of my scaleless hands. While she'd been talking, I had removed the two hair ties anchoring my long braid. Now the brown hair spilled down my back, but none of the shorter aliens had noticed yet. I held up a hand with the bright blue hair ties looped around my thumb. Me next, I said. The various faces looked up at me. Before they could say anything, I splayed my hair around my shoulders like a cobra and spread my arm. Surprise! Their reactions were great. Twitches of startlement and some very white eyes. They all tried to hide this, of course, some claiming that they had realized early on that my braid was simply long fur. They just hadn't thought that it would look like that when let down. I hemmed it up for the curious eyes, spreading a wave of shiny brown hair around myself like a cloak then gathering it up again and letting it fall. My very professional co-workers did the best to hide the childish amazement at the exotic display. Even when I wove it back into a braid, their eyes followed my fingers in the dance that I did every morning. A fellow human had suggested before I left Earth that cutting my hair short would be the practical decision. I'm sure that it would have been, but this was absolutely worth it. The kids call me the tall alien with the head tentacle, which is something that a ten-year-old me would have laughed out loud about. And 
I get to surprise the dignified adults too, which is always a bonus. End of story. Story number one, The Rook Drive, written by Lyceum 43. It is widely agreed upon fact amongst the United Leagues that Terrans are unique and unruly species. For proof of that, we need only look at their favorite sports, asteroid jousting and slingshot racing. Both are profusely dangerous and require skill beyond the average United League citizen, or indeed, the average human. However, humans continue to compete in both, using remote control ships for to practice, though the real competitions are in person. Annoyingly for some, the effects of the Terran culture and society can be seen slowly creeping into the cultures of some of the newer members of the galactic stage. The professor paused his lecture and looked around. His students, a diverse group made up of most species in the United League, were staring at him intently. He hadn't ever seen them disengage before, but, he said, I'm not here to tell you about the Terrans and their madness or their pastimes. I'm here to talk about what sets them apart from us, soul's isolation. While life on Earth was still in its infancy, a freak collision destroyed the soul junkate, preventing the United Leagues from contacting humanity. Without the intervention of the UL, the Terrans had to learn the lessons of the great filters of their own. They very nearly wiped themselves out in the way they call the Third World War, and similarly almost polluted their own world past the point of no return. Somehow, despite the odds stacked against them, the Terrans survived and flourished. First came the colonies on the fourth planet on Sol, then more on the moons of the fifth, and then survey vessels found the wreckage of the jump gate. He paused and brought up a picture of the severely destroyed jump gate and his visual aid. Despite the damage, the general shape was still recognizable. The ring from which several spires projected out, along the direction that you would enter the gate from. The Terrans studied the gate for almost a decade before they made a working prototype, but they hadn't built a replacement gate. Instead, they built what they called a uh, rip drive. I am sure several of you have heard about the Terran FTL before, so allow me to quickly dispel the more popular myths. No, Terrans don't enter hell to traverse faster than light, nor does the rip drive hasten the inevitable heat de death of the universe. Finally, there is no evidence that the Terran ship has ever gone to visit the Milky Way's galactic neighbors. With that out of the way, the Terran rip drive is very different from the United League jump gates, and has several pros and, of course, cons when compared. When a ship enters jump gate, they instantly exit the parton gate without time lost. Comparatively, a rip drive will trip will take time. Time in hours that we can calculate it as. He turned and wrote about a formula on the visual aid. The power of eight root of the distance in meters over the speed of light in meters per second, or s divided by c to the power of one-eighth, where s is the displacement of meters, and c is the speed of light in meters per second. Now, some of the more mathematically gifted members of the class might have noticed, according to this formula, it would take a little over ten hours to cover the distance between Sol and the nearest star to Sol, Proxima Centauri. Which is true. However, the rip drive can target any place outside a gravitational well. Assuming a Terran ship has to travel to the edge of the galaxy and attempt to travel to the opposite side of the galaxy, 
it would take them only a little over 33 hours. A ship traversing the Jumpgate network would take months to do the same trip, losing a couple hours every time they had to cross the system to reach the next gate. The lecturer stopped for a second, turning to check the source of motion that had caught his eye. He was a student, one of the smaller Castian students, holding his arm in the air, a uniquely human gesture. The lecturer humored him, yes. These uh, rip drives seem objectively superior to the gate network. Why didn't we switch over? The student asked. Because they aren't suited to the UL's needs, the lecturer explained. It is very rare for a ship in the United Leagues to need to travel more than a couple of systems. The few ships that do need to, freighters and the like, couldn't get rip drives because the Terrans won't give them up. Why not? The student asked. Because rip drives are an important part of Terran security. Only rip drives can access Sol as the Terrans continually reject requests and offers to build a gate in their home system. Because of this, should the Terrans ever go to war with the United League, they have an advantage of having an untouchable industrial powerhouse and recruiting center. And uh, we allow this? A different student, a big and burly panic, asked. We should punish them for their insolence. Perhaps, the lecturer began carefully. But I would remind you that the Terran naval forces are comparable to the United League's navy in size, and the Terran warfare technology is superior to the United League. Regardless, he continued, the Terrans enjoy their extra layer of security and do not appear to be giving it freely any time soon. Of course, the Terrans still make use of the gate analog devices in their colonies, which they call routers. Routers, which get their name from the old Terran device that broadcast wireless signals throughout a building, are essentially planet-side small gates operated by Terran companies through which signals can be transmitted and received. Terrans use these routers to facilitate real-time communication throughout their empire. Can we not use these to access Sol? The Pallock asked. Only if you know a species that can fit through a hole in space-time smaller than your hand. The professor replied. The holes opened by the routers only need to be big enough to fit electromagnetic waves through, usually waves with 6 to 12 centimeter wavelengths. Do the Terrans not find the ten hour or more transit time between Seoul and their colleagues logistically straining? Aquilician students near the back of the class asked. I can't speak for them, said the professor. But I would imagine not. They're used to it and factored it into the wait when they started those colonies. And besides, they can and do make use of the gate network when it is more convenient to them. But Terran paranoia runs deep. Their history is literally littered with tales of conflict and woe, and they don't believe that just because Terrans have reached the stars that that will change anytime soon. So the UL allows them to defend their home system, and in turn Terrans provide the UL with insight gained from studying their gate. But what about... the Rahasian students started to say. I'm afraid that's enough questions for now, the professor said. You all have an assigned reading in your textbooks to complete before the end of the session. If you have any burning questions that can't wait until the Q&A tomorrow, please see me after the session. With a mix of species, unique signs of disappointment, some sighs, some displays of plumage, and one spurt of the sickly green smoke from the high-look student in the corner, the class pulled out bound tombs or digital tablets or tactile registers and began their reading. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1606. 
Story number two. Humans think explosives are pretty. Written by writer Unblocked. Humankind, as a species, in its entirety, is obsessed with combustion. They revel in all facets of it. The warmth, the energy, but most of all, the sight of it. This isn't unwarranted, of course. The discovery and harnessing of combustion has been declared one of, if not the most pivotal step in a species' path towards evolution and dominance over their planet. At least, on the planets where combustion is possible in the first place. However, humans differ from most sentient races in their approach, as is the case with most things. Where other races mastered friction first, or trapped and harnessed the light of nearby stars for the purpose of achieving heat, humanity made leaps and soaring bounds to pure combustion itself. Open, uncontrolled flame. It is unlikely that humanity was completely unaware of the previous methods mentioned, but they did make a point of choosing the most difficult and dangerous form of creating exothermic energy as the one to master first. Contrary to popular belief, humanity was actually very slow to harness the power of the natural magma of their planet. Human and Earth-trained scientists are at the forefront of technology that makes use of molten planetary cores but that leap forward is a relatively recent one. In researching this phenomenon, I questioned every human I could about why they thought their species was so fixated on combustion and on fire itself. The most sound reason was a mix of comfort and safety. This is understandable. Earth is a seasonal planet, and therefore an understanding of thermodynamics is necessary to survive and thrive in colder regions and seasons. The next answer was also logical. Cooking. Humans have been using heat to enhance and expand their catalogue of foodstuffs for almost as long as they've existed. With even cursory glances, I couldn't believe the sheer number of things on Earth alone that could be made edible, let alone more nutritious than their base form with the simple application of a little heat. Other races used to argue and compete over who came from the most distinguished culinary pedigree those claims have long since been decisively silenced. The third and most common answer I received, I simply didn't and still don't understand. I just like it. I expected to hear more and more about how it furthered technological advancements. And to be fair, those points were raised. Generations of human weapons, vehicles, and various machines all utilize combustion in one way or another. Now the roots, though, human fascination with combustion, simply that, fascination. Many of them describe to me creating a combustion reaction to simply gaze into it, literally becoming entranced or even hypnotized by the flame. It is because of this that I believe the human known as Piranha D. Selvin should be released and pardoned from all charges raised as a result's event detailed in Case 17IK-2409. Transcript follows. You said that you're going to get that door open back there. How do you plan on achieving that? I'm going to blow it up. What? How? This is a space station. Everything in, on, and around us is specifically designed to not explode. Yeah, on their own. What is that supposed to mean? The fire suppression in this is that green foam that you guys make, right? Yes. Okay. 
Well, on its own, it snuffs out flames. It's a chemical compound like anything else, though. If we get enough of it in a small enough space, with, with some of that aerosolized adrenaline substitute, it explodes. Uh, I, uh... What? Uh, how do you plan on getting that gas here? Uh, that vent right there. Atlas is in medical, hooking up some canisters up as we speak, and Carson is in engineering, making sure the right pipes are all linked up. And how do you plan on creating a small enough space? By triggering the emergency airlock, and before you ask, I'll do that by shooting the panel open from back here-ish. With a what? Firearm? This one. That's not a firearm, that's a stun pin. It doesn't have a projectile. Uh, not normally, no, um, but, but I modded the battery. Now all I need to do is dial up the charge, hold it like so, and the pin flies off pretty damn accurately. How do you know that? Uh, sword Online. This model is actually about to be phased out because of exactly how easy it is to do. Okay, assuming all of this goes to plan, the first component is still missing. You don't have the means of creating a fire to trigger the suppression system. What do you think is in the battery I'm about to blow up? How many of the countermeasures and failsafes on the station do you know how to manually trigger? How many are there? What? Also, you're going to destroy your hand, maybe your whole arm. Mm-hmm. And you're okay with that? I mean, uh, it's gonna suck. Not as much as letting that door stay closed, though. How much longer until this insanity? Let's see, um... Atlas, how are we looking? Acknowledged all that, Chief. Just waiting on the th go-ahead. Translation. All good down here, Chief. Just waiting on the go-ahead. You good? It just cracked the vial the first time I tried to hook it up. It's got to go snuff out the air. Probably not good just to hear it. No, just don't need it. Looks like infinephrine if you can't breathe. Translation. Yes. Just cracked a vial the first time I tried to hook it up. You got some of the stuff in the air. Probably not good to be near it if you don't need it. Stuff's like epinephrine you can breathe. Will he be alright? Should be. That said, uh, if this works and we'll survive, we'll definitely need to lock him down. That sounded like someone on stage one of becoming a junkie. Carson! All green on my end. Actually, a lot of stuff's red and yelling at me now, but uh, the drugs are on the way. Alright, here goes something uh, stupid. Transcript ends. End of story. Story number one. Terran war chants are terrifying. Written by Hinterland Seer. Zarak rolled his shoulders in anticipation of the coming landing, shifting eagerly in his seat and running his claws along the grip of his plasma caster. His group would be running a joint mission with the now infamous Terran Marine Corps, specifically the first interplanetary division or as they were more commonly known, the Housekeepers. He only had a fuzzy understanding of the colloquial nickname, something to do with the ancient Terran slug throwers used during the major war in their history being named some kind of cleaning implement, broomsticks or dirt sweeper or something like that. What he fully understood was that they earned the nickname when they had swept through an entire entrenched enemy position using the relics. One of the marines across from him had such a weapon hanging at their side. The thing was a hunk of steel and wood, and even though they was clearly religiously maintained, it was showing its age. The results spoke for themselves, nonetheless. Every deployment the housekeepers were sent on saw them returning with even more decorations and medals than before. Every. Single. Mission. 
It had him at hopeful that he would finally get to see the Terrans in action, as even lesser divisions were popping up in the extra net with details of impossible victories. The explosive rise to dominance on the battlefield, no matter where, had many of his compatriots eager to see just what the tactics allowed the youngest military to be so successful. He was rather abruptly pulled from his musings on potential battle strategies by two quick, deep thuds against the ship. That was odd. They shouldn't be nearing the planet for another hour, and those slimy Katbeltal wouldn't be opening fire on this dropship shutter for another two after that. You know, once they're deployed into proper atmosphere. Before he could think of any probable issues, a loud, notably Terran clap resounded through the shuttle. A heartbeat later, the thumps repeated themselves, becoming the obvious sound of one of the marines stomping their floor. Then they clapped again. The noise seemed to get to attention of everyone in the shuttle, in the form of confused looks from the non-Terrans and amused grins from the Terrans. As the marines repeated the act attempting to stomp a hole through the floor plating, Zolak fully believed the Death Builders were more than capable of that if they actually tried. Several of the other marines clapped in time with them. And so it began. As the entirety of the first became in time their stomps on the floor, finishing the assault with an eager clap. Yet it didn't end there. As just before anyone else could voice their rightful confusion over the random violence, the marine who started it bellowed out a line that made even less sense. He called out to someone, though Zerlak couldn't figure out who, for the life of him, about how they were in an experienced youth who would go on to do great things. He thought. As sudden as it was, he was hopelessly lost over why this had started, and his and everyone else's confusion only grew further as the rest of the marines cried out in unison to use rock against that poor boy the first marine called out. Not once did the rhythmic stomping and clapping stop. The thing shifted, and the marine called out the young man full of potential, again of unknown identity, claiming that they were a hardened survivor from the streets, going to build themselves an empire against an entire world. And as the tiny speck of understanding dawned on Serlak, the rest of the marines all repeated their threat of rocking that person. Not once did the rhythmic stomping and clapping stop. Zerlak realized this was not a call to lynch someone, or an evaluation of the potential of a talented individual, but the chant the humans used to build a battle further. And he was terrified. The effects of the primal music and the heavy stomping and clamping filled him with dread. And the unfolding story of the now-aged man begging for peace after a lifetime of fighting, being cast aside, and the enthusiastic chanting of the crowd of marines brought forth Zalek's instinctual urge to curl up in a tight ball and wait for the threat to pass. He was not the only one crippled by the Terran's powerful war chants. Not once did the rhythmic stomping and clapping stop. The Terrans continue to win engagements because they throw their entire beings into everything they do, and that effort usually has the effect of showing just how serious these Death Wilders are about devotion. 
to most militaries around the galaxy, to throw one's entire self into something would usually have a limit of personal investment. This is not the case with Terran militaries, where personal investment is much the same as societal obligation. Thus, when the Terrans throw themselves into something, it is taken to mean that they are devoting with the lack of any limitations whatsoever. It is the lack of limiting their devotion that has led to the numerous units and factions within the galactic community being utterly terrified of the things as simple as soldiers hyping themselves up. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1607. Story number two. The humans got it done. Written by Sol, but better. War on the ground was a messy affair. Everybody knew it, too. The vast majority of nations preferred to fight from the comfort of the sky, bombarding from the safety of well-armored ships. This is so much the case that entire interstellar conventions and doctrines had been formed specifically to address the popularity of this warfare. By the time the humans arrived on the galactic stage, most nations had completely disbanded their ground forces in favor of simply bombarding an objective. With that objective being surrendered once a certain threshold of damage had been inflicted in accordance with galactic convention. And, for centuries, that was what warfare looked like. Not for the humans, though. They, like many primitive species, had arrived on the scene with their clunky ground forces and archaic artillery. However, unlike other species, they did not shed these implements of war in favor of conventional method of orbital bombardment. Rather, they grew their ground forces to be used alongside orbital bombardment, working in tandem to create a uniquely effective form of warfare. They threatened to displace the status quo of warfare, but for the most part, we left the humans to their own devices, and they left us to ours. That was until the arrival of the Horde. For centuries, disunited tribes of barbaric and nomadic spacefarers had wandered the vast swaths of the Pembrian Drift, battling amongst each other with their vast nomad fleets and periodically raiding the settled lands of the Hamanchanite or of the Arrow. For the most part, however, they had kept to themselves in their own corner of the savage space. That changed in 2892, however, with the arrival of Malam, a legendary warrior amongst their people. The Malam had united the desperate tribes of the Pembrium Drift and had organized them into one body, known by many names, but to the galaxy, they were the Horde. The Horde swept into the Hamatinate, the Hamatinate had long fought against the nomads for centuries of their history, and were adept at countering the tactics of ships. They fought long and bitterly, forcing the Horde to pay for every system gained with a hundred ruined vessels. I owe it to the Hamatinate that we survived the Horde. They brought us the valuable time we needed to organize to counter the threat. But inevitably, Hamatinate crumbled beneath the Horde, and they turned their attention to the Arrow. The Arrow, widely regarded as galactic pushovers, elected to surrender to the Horde. They were forced to give up their resources to the Horde, and their ships were repurposed to join in the War of Conquest. In exchange, they were spared total annihilation. The war between the civilized galaxy and the Horde drew on for decades, 
Our combined fleets were a match for those of the Horde, but the Horde did not follow galactic convention on the ground. We could bombard them, ruin their fortresses, decimate their cities, even glass their continents, but nothing beyond cracking the very planet would rid them of it. As long as the hostile planet or station was present, no ground could truly be gained with an adversary gathering strength from behind, and so the war settled into a stalemate. But the Horde being defeated in space, and us being unable to beat them on the ground. That was, until the humans came to help. They had lost one of their core worlds, an industrial world known as Harmony, to a surprise Horde attack. The population had been massacred, and the resources pillaged for war effort, and the humanity had been left with a bloody, barren world that billions had once called home. Humans were a species that, while inherently combative with one another, displayed a high level of camaraderie as a whole. The loss of one of their worlds had enraged the humans, and sent them from being a previously neutral power to a fervent ally of the now coalition of civilized worlds. It was them who broke the stalemate, who took back the ground, bound by stifling traditions and inflexible doctrine. We had been unable to fight on the ground. The humans, however, were never more adept at it. We watched with awe as the legions of stalwart soldiers and tanks were deployed on horde-controlled worlds and fought with the fervor of a thousand orbital strikes. They did not merely damage enemy fortifications, they utterly obliterated them. They followed no rules, no codes, no conventions. Every human soldier fought as if they were fighting for their own lives. And with that game of ferocity and viciousness needed to win a war. On the final world of the Horde, the former Hemenitate fortress known as Camaret, the humans proved their valor one last time. Against the combined Horde, the humans fought the single bloodiest battle in galactic history. Nearly two billion humans were left broken and mangled on that bloody world when the year of fighting had ceased with the raising of the flag. In a controversial but well-earned move, they raised the flag of humanity first, the symbol of their system against the blue black drop, before raising that of the coalition. And so the civilized galaxy had won the war, and humanity had won their reputation. They had changed the face of warfare across the galaxy forever. Their legacy ingrained onto the monuments and in the blood-soaked dirt of a thousand worlds. For all of history. For all of time. Humanity will be known as the ones who got it done! End of story. Story number one. Saved by First Contact. Written by Rebel Hero. Our war against the Kral was going poorly. We were a civilization of scientists, farmers, teachers. Our ideal garden world had left us little reason to master the arts of warfare. It was just another study to us. The Arkal, however, saw it as a way of life. We were helpless against their assault. We learned quickly, though, and dug in. Our fortifications were enough to hold them back for a time, but it wasn't enough. We knew that they would overwhelm us eventually. 
Then, her radio signal was intercepted. A former new civilization, yet undiscovered. There was so much noise in it, the message was hard to translate. But we worked day and night on it. Now, it seems so strange that we directed so much of our efforts into decoding a message from another world, while our own burned around us. Oh, we did. We built the necessary equipment and had out most of our powerful interstellar satellites send out a response. We are the Nectatha. Our time is coming to an end, but we are filled with great joy to have met you. We assumed that would be our legacy, as a time it would take a radio message to cross the stars would be centuries, maybe. We did not have that long. Arkal did not rush, but our defeat was inevitable. Then a reply came, hardly a decade later. The advancements in their simple radio signal were profound. The message was much clearer, shorter, and seemingly sent directly to us. We are humanity. You are our first contact. Can we aid you? We were filled with shock, pride, happiness. Then horror. No, they could not aid us. We would not feed another civilization to the Arkal in a vain hope for survival. We replied quickly. War, death, slaughter. Do not aid us. All will be lost. We gathered round for a quiet, bittersweet celebration. At a first contact of a new civilization in eons, our cities continued to slowly fall. Our population dwindled. Our people used as fodder and feed. We wept in silence and merely waited for the end. The next reply came, just under another decade later. A few weeks after the Arkal landed on our shores, one of the last remaining continents. The message was short. We must and our hearts sank. Surely by the time they arrived, our planet would be a husk, a hive for the Arkel. And before we could respond, another message. We have arrived, and the sky filled with fire. Massive jagged metal ships fell through the atmosphere, trailing fire and smoke. Then each ship dislodged more smaller ships, which in turn launched thousands of even smaller ships. In less than an hour, the sky was filled with screams and roars of these strange human machines. From some of the larger ships, the humans exited. They were small things, so very small, but there were so many. They all looked mostly the same, save for the difference in the colors they presented. The ones that looked the most different, with the long white cloth flowing from them, came straight to us. The rest began to work, digging and building. The ones with white could not speak our language, but had small machines that did it for them. It was broken and awkward, but we understood. Friend, danger, defend, enemy, data. We tried to make them understand the horror of the Arkal. They seemed only emboldened, so we told them what we could. When the shouting started, we knew the Arkal were near. We shook with fear. Many of us collapsing. Our new white-clothed human friends rushing to our sides. What followed, though, wasn't the sounds of what we'd come to expect. There were great booms that shook everything. Then again, as the ground itself seemed to explode, the Arkal fell by the thousands. The human armaments delivered death at ranges never before thought to be possible. 
The wall of death that the Arkal usually pushed forth seemed to turn on them. The sound was deafening and endless. For hours they fought. These strange machines they used shaking their whole bodies violently. But they continued on. Then something we had never seen before happened. The Arkal broke ranks and fled and our brave, insane human friends chased them. They ran straight towards the fleeing Akal. They had no chance to catch them, but they ran anyway, scrambling over the dead and dying like a tide of insanity with two legs. Only time an Akal turned to fight, the humans simply laid down and fired their weapons again. And if the Akal got too close, they simply turned around and ran away. They did this without end for days. They chased them off cliffs and into rivers and lakes, all the way back to the oceans. Many Arkals simply died fleeing, or fell on the ground and was either trampled or captured by the humans. These strange, small, soft creatures chased the most dangerous beings that we have ever known off of the continent. The humans seemed to be amused by our astonishment. One of the white-clothed humans told us, Ancestors, primitive, world-dangerous, run, survive, fight back, throw. And our people, with all of our knowledge and all of our learning, never once thought to throw our weapons at our enemies. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1608 Story number two, The Question of Violence, written by Psychedelicat When any new species is discovered, Fitz gives the question, Violence? Many thought that it was a philosophical debate, thus sent the best of the best, and each of their answers took days to recite. Others thought that their stance on violence, and while it didn't take days, it still took hours. Not once did it react. Many believed it simply couldn't. In this new species, humanity was asked. The universe watched with bated breath to see how they would take to the question and how they would answer. Imagine the surprise of all when they sent only a single diplomat and gave a simple one-word answer, only taking a few seconds. That word was... Yes. At a shock, not a single sound was made by any watching until there was a noise, quite an odd one at that, it was laughter, full-bellied laughter. It was laughing. It got up, walked forward, and with a smile said, <laughs> Hello and welcome to the rest of the universe, new friends. Story number one. Guilty by Shania Vonson. And to ooze, eye stalks throbbed. These humans would be the death of them, they knew. They check over the docket again, hoping for a case that didn't involve the humans. No such luck. It wasn't that humans went around looking for trouble. It was just that they often found it. The other galactic species left the Wolaru system alone, only landing on many of its plants long enough to unload and or load their freighters. Humans had a different idea about trade, though. They felt the cultural trade was as important as physical goods, and humans had begun vacationing on the worlds orbiting Wolaru and inviting the Lorans to visit their home star. 
and two knew that the semi-laranoid creature on the human homeworld called crabs. They had large claws rather than ten-digit manipulators, but had the body plan was similar. They guessed that was why humans were willing to travel to another system and see how the locals live. There was nothing like the humans in any of the worlds in Walaru. There were small creatures with four legs, some with wings, and some without. But they were all exoskeletal, and none bigger than a single manipulated digit. Like all of the larger creatures in the system, Narens had an endo-exoskeletal structure with muscle and tissue sandwiched between the inner bones and the outer carapace. Humans just looked uh, squishy, strange, disgusting. Antu stood in the platform that would raise them to the judging chambers and push the button. They spent the moments meditating on detachment. It was too easy to ignore the training they had received in remaining detached and impartial. When one sees hundreds of cases involving humans, and they are always the accused, it's easy to think that humans are, by their nature, trouble. Antu was certain that many of their fellow judges found humans at fault out of habit, xenophobia, and for expediency's sake. As they rose into the chamber, Antu saw something they never expected, with one eye stalk pointed at the accused and one at the aggrieved, and the other two fixed on their desk. Antu felt off balance for a moment. The accused was Lauren, the aggrieved human. The security arbiter, a Lauren whose carapace was painted in a black with gold stripes, looked in the middle of the chambers. Esteemed judge Antu has entered. The aggrieved may speak. Nantu kept one eye on the aggrieved and one on the terminal, and the other two on the accused. Watching reactions often gave more indication of guilt or innocence than words, if only they could read the behaviors of humans as easily. The aggrieved was small for a human, with infant feeding orbs, marking them as a female. While they was still strange for them, sexual dimorphism was becoming easier for Antu to distinguish. Her accent was horrid, but she spoke fluent Lauren Common. Esteemed judge, I paid the accused 400 standard galactic credits for a lease of a living pod for 30 days. Uh, planetary rotations. I have the original contract and receipt here with me. After just six rotations, the accused changed the lock codes and threw all my belongings outside. I either want to finish out the remaining 24 rotations in the pod, or be reimbursed 320 standard galactic credits. And to raise the manipulator. Aggrieved, I see that you have filed copies of the documents, and have them before me, as it has been 16 rotations since you were put out of the accommodations. Where have you been staying? Esteemed judge, I have been staying at the Hotel Europa near the human embassy. The prices there are far lower. Why did you wish to stay in a living pod? I want to experience Waluru and Turu, as the locals do. Staying in a human hotel, speaking Terran common, eating standard earth fare, is hardly the way to do that. Understood. Have you anything else to add? Uh, no, esteemed judge. She stepped back, and the security arbiter spoke again. The accused may answer. Mentu noticed that none of the accused eye stalks ever turned towards the human. They held their manipulators clasped below the lower carapace, and their eight legs were evenly placed below them in a position from which they could bolt in any direction. Clear signs of unease. 
Esteemed judge, it is a singular honor to be in your presence. As I explained to the human, I could only lease the pod out for as long as no other person wished to take a more long-term lease. Six days after the human occupied the pod, that long-term lease request came through. I had not evicted the human then. I would have lost out on a minimum of 700 rotation lease. And watched as the accuser Lauren kept all four eye stalks looking directly over their head. The dishonesty was obvious. What is the usual charge for those pods? They asked. They vary, esteemed judge. I see that. I am looking at the rates now, they said, motioning with an eye stalk to the terminal in front of them. For the record, what are the usual rates? The usual rates are between four and nine decalas per rotation, with a five percent discount for prepaid leases of more than a hundred rotations. And what, they asked, is that in galactic common credits at the exchange rate on the date of the initial lease? I'm not sure, esteemed judge. I wouldn't like to guess and sully the honor of your chambers. Roughly one and a half to one credit per rotation. The same rate as today. What was so special about the pod that it warranted a rate thirteen times higher than normal? It is a deluxe pod, esteemed judge. Which leases at nine decolors, one galactic credit per rotation, according to your own records. Why did you charge the equivalent of 120 decolors per rotation? I am a business person, esteemed judge. It is in my interest to make a profit where I can. The human was willing to pay it, so that's what I charged. I am looking through this lease agreement. Nowhere do I see a clause that allows you to summarily evict the resident in the case of a longer lease becoming available. It was stated and agreed verbally, esteemed judge. The recorded lease takes precedence over any verbal agreement. You are lucky to be in my judging chamber, accused. There are many crimes I could charge you with, but I am limiting those charges to lease fraud and breach of conduct. The grieve is awarded one and a half times the value of the original contract. That's the actual value used. That's 600 galactic standard credits. That's six for the days occupying the pod. So 593 standard galactic credits, or 5,337 decolors. The aggrieved must be paid within one rotation, or you will be further be charged with theft and will face the maximum sentence of 5,337 rotations. Punitive fees payable to the Council of Judges shall be set at a maximum of ten times the fraudulent contract amount, 36,000 decolors. This amount is to be paid within the next thousand rotations. Failure to do so will be seen as a mockery of the court and will face a sentence of one rotation for every unpaid decolor. And to put a digit on the terminal, signing the declaration with their DNA. They waited while the security arbiter led the first of the agreed, then the convicted out of the chambers, then pushed the button to descend back into their office. No sooner had they sat at their desk than a message board shared by other judges and court officials began filling up. The arbiters, security, pre-processing, and others, and who could understand, one doesn't need or get the same training for those positions. The message from the other judges, though. Apart from one judge, the others questioned how a human could win against the Lauren. They were always in the wrong. How could such a disgusting creature ever be expected to behave properly in society? 
The one exception simply stated that Antu should have been more lenient in sentencing, rather than invoking the maximums. After all, they argued it wasn't like they defrauded Alaran. This would likely be the subject of debate for many rotations. And to rub their eye stalks in frustration, slammed their terminal closed, and spent the remainder of the rotation contemplating retirement. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1609. Story number two. Peace was never an option. Written by Nora. Peace was never an option. When we were born, our world gave us a simple choice. Struggle painfully, or die peacefully. All those you see before you screamed a battle cry with their first breath, in defiance of the very order of the world. We fought heat and cold, wind and rain, the highest mountains and the deepest oceans, and we conquered them all. Because peace was never an option. We began as toothless, clawless, hairless apes of the African savannah. That same savannah where lions and hyenas stalked the grass. Hippos guarded the rivers and crocodiles lurked in the watering holes. We killed them. We killed them until those who were left were barely a speck of the earth. Because peace was never an option. We killed each other too, over food, over land, over lovers, over mountains and rivers, over who was born, when, and what words were in each other's books, over the color of our skin, over the contents of our treaties. We killed and killed and killed, until rivers ran red with blood, all were damned, choked with the bodies of the fallen, until ash fell like snow upon the ground from the ever-hungry corpse fires. Because peace was never an option. No thing was safe from our wrath. We killed the locusts in our field, the mice in our homes, the lice in our hair, the bacteria inside our bodies. Even the atom was sundered by our relentless struggle to kill. We shackled ourselves from time immemorial. We shackled ourselves, but now even more so. We put on thick chains around our limbs and collars on our necks, declared there to be rules in engagement, and refused to use our most terrible tools upon each other. Instead of laying down our arms, we obeyed our rules of war, because peace was never an option. Now we sail across the stars, with more than just our Mother Earth to nurture our bloodlust. And you... Come to us with your warships and an ultimatum. You tell us to submit to you and live in peaceful servitude. Or die in war. You even made a big show of destroying several civilian ships to demonstrate your power. And don't misunderstand. You are powerful. Yet you are surprised that we resist. Surprised that our response to violence was not cowed deference, but indignant retaliation. You asked us why we chose war when the price of peace was simple obedience, and the answer is really quite simple. Because peace was never an option. Excerpt from Sergei Kalitska VII 
ambassador for the coalition to his counterpart in the Basis Imperium, as he declares the beginning of what would be known as the 600 years of war in 82 HE. Human error. End of story. Story number one. A little more. Written by DeRay Leaf. A little more. The hull groaned as frantic engineers coaxed just a little more out of the engines of the battered and beleaguered freighter. Her captain's eyes were glued to a small readout on the console before them, on their lips curled into a feral grin. Come on, girl, just a little more, just, just a little more. She was a good ship, dependable, not much to look at at most human vessels. Function over form ruled the engineer's mindset and vessels traversing the void didn't need streamlining. So Rick with engines worked just as well and allowed them to fit a little more of everything into the frames. And more was always good. Especially when the captain ship grade plasma beam brushed up against the groaning freighter's frame and sheared off a number five engine in its totality. The other nine engines just got overcharged a little more by the main engineer that stood in a pool of engine lubricant mixed with blood of his first engineering mate. His manic grin mirrored by the blur that was his hands across his console, shunting power in real time through systems built with triple redundancy as a bare minimum. A flick of his thumb opened a channel to the bridge and even with certain death, only minutes away, he managed to keep his spirits up. His voice distorted through the damaged comm channels, but his atrocious fake Scottish accent was still clearly audible. We lost number five, Captain. I don't know how much more she can take, sir, but I'm doing my best. The captain blinked in surprise and looked up from their display as the engineering reports filtered in. The enemy ship that filled the display more and more forgotten for the briefest of heartbeats, and their thumb flickered they come. Very well, Scotty. The moor delivers once again. Just a little more. With their eyes falling back onto the display, the grin grew wider. Yet the tinge of sadness creased their eyes. If only they'd done more sooner. If only they... They had arrived in system three Earth standard cycles before, or roughly two local days... A small convoy plying the trade lanes in this part of the so-called Krabby Federation. The race that claimed these systems had a name that was impossible to pronounce for human vocal cords, and they looked like the bastard love child of a huntsman spider and a horseshoe crab, so the Krabby nickname was adopted early on. Their looks were notwithstanding, they actually were humanity's earliest and strongest trading partner. For all their fierce looks, though, the crabs were in essence a race of benign explorers, docile and hard to anger. Not to mention plain, adorable when still young. They had stolen the hearts and the minds of any humans coming across them. This fact had led to the conflict in the end, though. The crabs' docility made other empires eye them as easy prey. One of the neighboring empires had sent a fleet and began annexing systems left and right, and now, for the first time, human ships met these invaders. No formal declaration had been made, so the human vessels still had their neutrality, which the small trading convoy had abused to the fullest. 
Ostensibly doing routine trading routes, every ship had returned with their holds full of crabby refugees, the company actually running their profits into the ground by trying to just get a little more of the refugees out of harm's way. The invaders had taken far too long to catch on, and that had made the convoy complacent. Doing the last run for more refugees with invader ships already in system had been a mistake. One that the captain commanding the lead freighter regretted immensely right now. But they would make up for it. Just a little more effort. Just a little more. An invader cruiser had dropped out of FTL right on the flank of the five freighters of their lone crab corvette escort. The escort dying in gouts of atmosphere as the invader's plasma beams leisurely cut its hull into pieces. The captain and the crew grimaced as the radio contact with the corvette cut abruptly. Only minutes before, they had been exchanging good-natured barbs about the fact that their class of freighters had a profile that looked like the rune for very rude action involving crabby reproductive organs. And then the cruiser jumped in and the jokes died along with the corvette's crew with startling abruptness. The invaders had demanded the human ships to power down and prepare to be boarded. In response, the human ships had poured on some mall speed instead, the FTL drive smoothing up and just a needling little more time. The time that the captain had the lead ship elected to give them. They didn't even need to ask their crew. A mere glance at the first officer had him slap the control panel. While the hull of the freighter vibrated with the dull thuds of explosive bolts being detonated, the captain opened a channel to the invader ship. This is Captain Bundy of the UNSCV, Roger Moore. We're on a humanitarian mission and will depart this AO within the next quarter cycle. Any acts of aggression towards us will be seen as an act of belligerence towards the whole of the United Nations of Seoul. You have been warned. They prepared speech was drilled into the head by members of the Earth Diplomatic Corps that had known that they could not stop civilians from wanting to do more for the refugee effort. So they just planned for every contingency. The invaders had bellowed their displeasure as the other four freighters hooked the cargo containers that the Roger Moore had just jettisoned and took them under tow. The Moor itself had defiantly put herself right in the cruiser's firing solution and coming to a relative halt, daring the cruiser to fire. And fire it did. Plasma beams cut into the freighter's outer hull and vented compartments along the entire length of the ship. But instead of dying or fleeing, the invaders, to their horror, found the blocky human ship accelerating towards them. Nobody ever charged straight into the firing solution of a cruiser like this. Nobody was ever that defiant. Nobody could be that stupid, could they? The confusion bought the moor just a little more time. She crossed more and more of the distance, separating the two ships, and behind her, the other four freighters jumped to FTL and safety. The captain snapped out of their memories and grinned through bloody teeth as the main display winked on with the first visual contact between humans and the invaders. A small bark of laughter escaped the captain's lips as the invaders turned out to look a lot like seven-foot-tall teddy bears. 
the universal translator, the crabs had sold humanity, kicking in to make frantic growls and bellows understandable. It didn't convey tone, but the way the bear on screen was gesturing made the distress very clear. Human vessel, veer off. You've made your point. Your bravery display is accepted. Veer off! The captain just looked up and grinned wide as they flicked the damage comms to transmit shipwide. Too little, too late. I have but one regret as we die here today. We won't see more of you die when your navy gets here. Once more into the breach, gentle beings. Once more! The invader captain reeled back, stunned at the defiant roar coming from the comms channel and then reeled even more as the human ship struck the cruiser's armored hull. Momentum overtaxed the shields and integrity fields, but the armor held. Inside the Roger Moore, the captain died smiling as the front bulkhead crushed their way, and deep within the bowels of the stricken ship, the chief engineer played one more trick. His eyes closed in acceptance as he almost casually brushed his thumb across the panel. The world and his life ended in a brilliant whiteness as the emergency reactor overload he initiated transformed the UNSCV Roger Moore and the invaded cruiser into an expanding ball of heat and radiation. And thus, the first shots of the war were fired. One ship for each side died, but many more would follow. Humanity was mobilizing, inspired and galvanized by the actions of a few intrepid traders that decided to do just that little bit more. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1610 It's all just a game, written by Eclipse Shadow. To Queen Zevera and the Revali High Council. It's, uh, all just a game to them. War, fighting, business, everything is a game to humans. Humanity makes a game out of everything and anything. Given that we frequently had quite a bit of time off between missions, I decided to learn more about human culture. So I asked Chris, my son, to introduce me to human games. He started me off with a rather simple one, a game about falling shapes. It was rather calming slowly building up a tower, then destroying the bottom layers with well-placed pieces. This lulled me into a false state of security as the game sped up, the tension of the building with every missed piece until I couldn't keep up. And last, he seems to be happy about my loss, explaining that I already beat the highest score 30 minutes ago. 30 minutes, I thought, only to realize almost two hours had passed. The next genre I tackled would be Grand Strategy. For the first game, I was taking control of a feudal lord during a time when many humans engaged in multiple holy wars. I slowly grew my forces on the small island nation I started at, fending off invading raiders until I had united the kingdom. Around this time, my character died of leprosy, or old age. Either way, I ended up playing as my brave son with one eye. He soon died two months later from poison. This left me with his son, a diligent duelist with a fever. Thankfully, he got over that just in time for the crusade to be called, where he died in battle. From what I learned from this game, 
humans back in the same time had substantially shorter lifespans. They died a whole lot quicker due to the lack of medicine and proper hygiene, and other genetic defects. The second genre I tried was real-time strategy. In this game, I played as a leader of a military where I would command my forces and conquer the battlefield. This seemed right up my alley, building up my base, developing a stronger army, and pushing into the enemy base slowly, but surely. I would sneak a few engineers into the enemy base to go and steal some of their buildings, allowing me to make some of their units. The thrill of optimizing my defenses and managing multiple fronts and building FOPs mid-fight was intense. I could feel that rush of the Senognosis at the time seemed to move slowly when it happened. Several attacks happening, my engineer sneaking into the enemy command center, my navy bombarding their allies' incoming forces, all the while my superweapon fired at the reinforcing enemy base, destroying his war factory. Oh, the joy I felt destroying their forces so easily. Taking a step away from the strategy genre, I moved on to shooter games. There seemed to be so many of them, so I guess this would be military shooter games. Either way, for this game I played a soldier on a battlefield. I opted to play a medic since it was what I am most familiar with. Immediately, thrusted into the game I was moving throughout the city, avoiding tanks and the occasional low-flying jet, reviving my allies and killing the enemy with my rifle. As I was capturing a point with my squad, someone was putting C4 on a vehicle, only to then crash said vehicle into the incoming tank and blow both up, along with himself. According to my son, this is normal for the game, and he seemed surprised nobody had launched a vehicle across the map with explosives yet. Apparently, Friendly fire is normally disabled for the mode that I was playing on allowing a glitch to happen wherein players could send their teammates flying across the battleground by setting off explosives beneath the vehicle. The next up was a more melee-oriented game. When looking up strategies for this game, most of what I could find was a recurring phrase of get good. Well... The monsters found in this game were rather difficult to fight, but I soon found my groove, as the humans would call it. I felt a rush of synagnosis as I faced some of the tougher enemies, the thrill of fighting mighty adversaries pushing me to fight harder. It was exhilarating. Before I knew it, I had already beaten the game three times in a row. Time seemed to slip by me, as I'd forgotten when I began playing. I decided to try out a horror game against my better judgment. This one in particular struck my interest as you could play as a monster or the survivors. My time as the monster reminded me of the day spent back home hunting prey. But as a survivor, the game became a tense chase, hiding where I could, using the environment to try and hinder my pursuing foe. I'll admit that it was terrifying, despite there being no threats to my life. The fear of something like that chasing me was rather haunting. Soon enough, I found myself playing a role-playing game, this one in particular being about a child who was gifted with an elemental animal as a pet and then thrust into a world to go catch more elemental animals and have them fight. It seemed odd at first, so while playing I began doing a bit of casual research on the series only to learn about just how intricate the underlying systems are. Inherited values, a genetic stat that determined how strong your creatures will be in certain areas, 
effort values based on what you fight, natures that boost one stat at the cost of another. They even had a system of crossbreeding creatures to give some unique moves that they may not have and don't even get me started on the hidden abilities some may have. Shortly after beating the game and doing a bit of experimentation, I managed to build the perfect team with the aforementioned systems and tried to out-competitive side of things. It seemed easier than expected with the random battles I entered, only for my son to interject, explaining that the weaker teams I faced were probably children. Perhaps I took things a bit far. I tried sports games, management games, and other genres, but nothing too out of the ordinary. They just seemed to show various aspects of human culture and do a rather good job at that. Racing games, on the other hand, seemed to be rather odd, as there was some where you could race others or see just how much damage and destruction to multiple vehicles was possible. Beyond that, nothing much stood out. I would later try out some virtual reality game, starting with one where you wielded various bladed melee weapons along with magic. It was rather interesting seeing the AI try and counter me, but they were rather predictable. In short, it seemed like an early prototype of a military combat and training simulations. But from what I had heard, this game that any human could just pick up and play. So to end it off, at the request of my son, I decided to try one more grand strategy game. What I found is horrifying. The humans have made an eerie recreation of the current war as a scenario campaign in this game. While some of the names aren't correct, key events that have already occurred and some we planned out but not yet executed exist within the game. But this DLC came out long before any of these events happened, and none of the development team are military, ex-military, or have any major contacts there. The stealth mission to eliminate a key enemy commander while publicly showing it, for example. From playing through this campaign... I can see that as things are, humanity can easily win the war against the Cargrarian Empire, with or without us. Then, there's the base game itself. You can create your own space-faring civilization and explore the galaxy, fighting various dangers, from rogue AI drones to sentient meteors, sending out science ships to go explore and discover the universe building up your technology with research, then having to fight wars because wars over borders or resources, or because of local marauders wanting more of your resources. Either way, there are so many ways to develop nations that it is mind-boggling just how advanced the simulation of running a spacefaring nation is, despite how old the game is. Not to mention the fact that this is a game, something humans play for fun. Dear sister, I implore you and the council to do one thing. Keep the humans as our friends at all costs. To them, war is nothing more than a game. A game their children can easily win. They are a species that has lived through two wars where their entire world was once fighting itself. Wars that later had games made of them. I do not fear that they'll suddenly turn on us, for they seem to have a fierce sense of loyalty to their friends and given how we were the first to welcome them to the galactic stage with open arms, they know us and love us. To them, we are their dear friends, and in some cases, their family. In all honesty, I believe that we should introduce our people to more of the human games, let our young learn to think just as strategically as the humans do, 
learn their culture inside and out. We should also introduce the humans to our own video games. While ours may be primitive by comparison, the humans seem to enjoy such things, calling them niche or cult classics. No one referring to an actual cult. Regardless, I believe this cultural exchange will help further our partnership and understanding of one another. Sincerely, your younger sister, Nathalia Shepard. End of story. Story number one. My rifle, written by DeRay Leaf. It's cold, and the wind bites my cheeks, threatening to freeze the tears leaking from my eyes. But I don't care. My eyes keep peering down the sight of my ancient rifle, swathed in cloth to protect its aging parts from the howling wind and the snow that drapes around me like a funeral shroud. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. I remember my mother leaning over me as I disassembled the spirit rifle over and over, till I got it all right. Her lesson ingrained into me so very deeply. The rifle has many parts, and jumbled up like this, the task can be daunting. But just pick one, make it shiny, then take another and see how they fit. Step by step, you build it back. She's gone now. So is our homestead, and the nearby town, and the big city over the hill. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it, as I must master my life. They came from the stars, enemies in a war we didn't care about. We're just a small colony far away from everything, just the way the folks here liked it. But the invaders didn't care. Movement catches my eye, and I focus on the gangly animal that steps onto the road down below. Even though it is nearly a kilometer away, the animal stops in the middle of the hardened road as my crosshair sweeps across it. It looks up, and I swear it looks right in my eyes down the scope. But I don't fire. I'm not hunting it just yet. My rifle without me is useless. A sound makes the animal bolt and headlights pierce the gloom that is prevalent nowadays. The rocks they use to fatten the cities and towns kicked up so much dust that I haven't seen a binary sun in months. But it was their mistake. The cloud cover means their ships in orbit can't provide support. Storms, like the brewing snowstorm, meant that the air support was grounded most days too. Hence, their reliance on old-fashioned ground-based transport. Without my rifle, I am useless. Transport, like the four ground cars that trundled into view around the bend. They look almost comical, wide and rounded to accommodate the inhuman invaders almost like a child's toy. Seeing the comically rounded toy cars parked outside of a burned-down homestead made the appearance a lot less endearing, though. My scope sweeps across the windshield of the first vehicle. Snowflakes splatter the glass, and my chapped lips curl painfully as I see the little detail. No shields on this one. The crosshairs fall on the driver, the fur on the alien still soggy from having been in the weather a short while ago. And the way they pant with their more open tells me that they're either anxious about driving in this weather or drunk. I don't really care. I must fire my rifle, true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. 
A quick sweep over the small convoy confirms they are all driving without shields. The three training vehicles stuck close to the lead one, a little too close even. New transfers, most likely. Good. I return my sight to the first driver. My breath warms my lips as I exhale slowly, as Mama taught me. Time stops. I will shoot him before she shoots me. I will... The kick against my shoulder is welcome. Below in the valley, the windshield of the squat invader ground car cracks into a spiderweb, and the compartment is splattered with what was the head of the driver a split second ago. The car loses control instantly and swerves, but it can't swerve far as a sudden drop in speed surprises the driver behind it. The second ground car slams into the back of the first one, but I only see this in passing. My sights sweep back over the third car that avoids hitting the second, but then gets thrown forward as the fourth car slams into it. The driver of the fourth car is shouting something to the alien riding shotgun as my second round of the night ends all of his troubles. His comrade opens his maw wide in shock as the driver's head explodes, but this shock is short-lived as my third round finds his throat. My rifle and I Know that what counts in this war is not the rounds we fire, the noise of our burst, nor the smoke we make. We know that it's the hits that count. We will hit. Invaders swarm out of the vehicles as I swivel my rifle back across. One of them seemed to know what to do, roaring commands and pointing out a good cover for his soldiers. His thoughts of command end as my fourth shot takes his leg off at the hip. The roar of sheer agony the shot produces echoes even up to my little perch, and again my chapped lips twitch with a cruel little smile. One of his soldiers rushes up and the medkit clutched in his paw like a football. I remember playing football with my siblings. They went to the big city to sell produce on the day that the sky caught fire. The alien medic joins his commander in agonizing screams as my fifth shot shatters the medkit in the arm that was clutching it into bloody ruin. My rifle is human, even as I am, because it is my life. Thus, I will learn it as a sibling. I will learn its weaknesses, its strength, its parts, its accessories, its sights, and its barrel. My thoughts go empty as I fire the next five rounds in the magazine. Aliens fall, screaming for their comrades with ruined limbs and clutching wounds in places that are not immediately fatal. The screams and the roars of pain unnerve those that remain, and, as I slide to the next heavy box magazine home, some down below lose their nerve completely. The route begins as troopers either wildly fire at random directions with their own rifles, or just throw down their weapons and run. The runners die first. I will keep my rifle clean and ready, even as I am clean and ready. We will become part of each other. We will. My mind goes blank as I fall into a rhythm, my crosshairs sweeping across the back of a running invader and my fingers squeezing just enough to make my rifle bark out my displeasure with a soldier that would abandon his rifle. That would abandon his comrades. These soldiers didn't kill my family. They didn't even kill my friends or the colony I grew up in. They're new recruits sent here by the Imperial leaders to secure the peace. They failed. And for their failure, they die. 
Before the gods, I swear the screed, my rifle and I are defenders of my family. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the takers of lives. They took the planet in less than a week. Powerful ships wiped out the paltry local garrison within hours, then took their time-flattening cities, towns, and finally targeting individual homesteads. But they miscalculated. It takes a certain kind of human to go settle on a godforsaken frontier planet, like this one. The kind of folks that need the peace after a long life of service. The kinds that have bags packed and rifles ready to go at a mere hint of trouble. The kind of folks that know their hills and forests like the back of their hands. So be it, until victory is mine and there is no enemy but peace. My rifle clicks empty on the fourth magazine of the day. Below the screams of the dying and the wounded echo over the snow-covered hills. Far off in the distance to my east, a dull boom reverberates, and my lips curl painfully yet again. It seems the Jameson boys, with their fancy man-pads, got lucky after all. The wounded down there won't be getting a Casavac from the local airbase just yet. So be it then. I get up and shake the snow off the thermal blanket that I am wearing as a cape. My trusty rifle is up and ready as I head off after the herbivore I saw earlier. The camps in the hills can always need more protein, after all. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1611 Story number 1 My Rifle, written by Duray Leaf It's cold, and the wind bites my cheeks, threatening to freeze the tears leaking from my eyes. But I don't care. My eyes keep peering down the sight of my ancient rifle, swathed in cloth to protect its aging parts from the howling wind and the snow that drapes around me like a funeral shroud. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. I remember my mother leaning over me as I disassembled the spirit rifle over and over, till I got it all right, her lesson ingrained into me so very deeply. The rifle has many parts, and jumbled up like this, the task can be daunting. But just pick one, make it shiny, then take another and see how they fit. Step by step, you build it back. She's gone now. So is our homestead, and the nearby town, and the big city over the hill. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it, as I must master my life. They came from the stars, enemies in a war we didn't care about. We're just a small colony far away from everything, just the way the folks here liked it. But the invaders didn't care. Movement catches my eye, and I focus on the gangly animal that steps onto the road down below. Even though it is nearly a kilometer away, the animal stops in the middle of the hardened road as my crosshair sweeps across it. It looks up, and I swear it looks right in my eyes down the scope. But I don't fire. I'm not hunting it just yet. My rifle without me is useless. A sound makes the animal bolt and headlights pierce the gloom that is prevalent nowadays. The rocks they use to flatten the cities and towns kicked up so much dust that I haven't seen a binary sun in months. But it was their mistake. 
The cloud cover means their ships in orbit can't provide support. Storms, like the brewing snowstorm, meant that the air support was grounded most days too. Hence, their reliance on old-fashioned ground-based transport. Without my rifle, I am useless. Transport, like the four ground cars that trundled into view around the bend. They look almost comical, wide and rounded to accommodate the inhuman invaders, almost like a child's toy. Seeing the comically rounded toy cars parked outside of a burned-down homestead made the appearance a lot less endearing, though. My scope sweeps across the windshield of the first vehicle. Snowflakes splatter the glass, and my chapped lips curl painfully as I see the little detail. No shields on this one. The crosshairs fall on the driver, the fur on the alien still soggy from having been in the weather a short while ago. And the way they pant with their more open tells me that they're either anxious about driving in this weather or drunk. I don't really care. I must fire my rifle too. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. A quick sweep over the small convoy confirms they are all driving without shields. The three training vehicles stuck close to the lead one, a little too close even. New transfers, most likely. Good. I return my sights to the first driver. My breath warms my lips as I exhale slowly, as Mama taught me. Time stops. I will shoot him before she shoots me. I will. The kick against my shoulder is welcome. Below in the valley, the windshield of the squat invader ground car cracks into a spiderweb, and the compartment is splattered with what was the head of the driver a split second ago. The car loses control instantly and swerves, but it can't swerve far as a sudden drop in speed surprises the driver behind it. The second ground car slams into the back of the first one, but I only see this in passing. My sights sweep back over the third car that avoids hitting the second, but then gets thrown forward as the fourth car slams into it. The driver of the fourth car is shouting something to the alien riding shotgun as my second round of the night ends all of his troubles. His comrade opens his maw wide in shock as the driver's head explodes, but this shock is short-lived as my third round finds his throat. My rifle and I know that what counts in this war is not the rounds we fire, the noise of our burst, nor the smoke we make. We know that it's the hits that count. We will hit. Invaders swarm out of the vehicles as I swivel my rifle back across. One of them seemed to know what to do, roaring commands and pointing out a good cover for his soldiers. His thoughts of command end as my fourth shot takes his leg off at the hip. The roar of sheer agony the shot produces echoes even up to my little perch, and again my chap lips twitch with a cruel little smile. One of his soldiers rushes up, and the medkit clutched in his paw like a football. I remember playing football with my siblings. They went to the big city to sell produce on the day that the sky caught fire. The alien medic joins his commander in agonizing screams as my fifth shot shatters the medkit in the arm that was clutching it into bloody ruin. My rifle is human, even as I am, because it is my life. I will learn it as a sibling. I will learn its weaknesses, its strength, its parts, its accessories, its sights, and its barrel. 
My thoughts go empty as I fire the next five rounds in the magazine. Aliens fall, screaming for their comrades with ruined limbs and clutching wounds and braces that are not immediately fatal. The screams and the roars of pain unnerve those that remain and, as I slide to the next heavy box magazine home, some down below lose their nerve completely. Their route begins as troopers either wildly fire at random directions with their own rifles, or just throw down their weapons and run. The runners die first. I will keep my rifle clean and ready, even as I am clean and ready. We will become part of each other. We will. My mind goes blank as I fall into a rhythm. My crosshairs sweeping across the back of a running invader, and my fingers squeezing just enough to make my rifle bark out my displeasure with a soldier that would abandon his rifle. That would abandon his comrades. These soldiers didn't kill my family. They didn't even kill my friends or the colony I grew up in. They're new recruits sent here by the Imperial leaders to secure the peace. They failed. And for their failure, they die. Before the gods, I swear this creed, my rifle and I are defenders of my family. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the takers of lives. They took the planet in less than a week. Powerful ships wiped out the paltry local garrison within hours, then took their time-flattening cities, towns, and finally targeting individual homesteads. But they miscalculated. It takes a certain kind of human to go settle on a godforsaken frontier planet like this one. The kind of folks that need the peace after a long life of service. The kinds that have bags packed and rifles ready to go at a mere hint of trouble. The kind of folks that know their hills and forests by the back of their hands. So be it, until victory is mine and there is no enemy but peace. My rifle clicks empty on the fourth magazine of the day. Below the screams of the dying and the wounded echo over the snow-covered hills. Far off in the distance to my east, a dull boom reverberates and my lips curl painfully yet again. It seems the Jameson boys, with their fancy man-pads, got lucky after all. The wounded down there won't be getting a Casavac from the local airbase just yet. So be it then. I get up and shake the snow off the thermal blanket that I am wearing as a cape. My trusty rifle is up and ready as I head off after the herbivore I saw earlier. The camps in the hills can always need more protein after all. End of story. Story number two. Leave, written by Speedhump23. The security droid looked at the wall. The strange text was painted in bright floral yellow and covered most of the wall. Photographing the text, the droid applied a spray of grey paint to the wall to cover the text and move on. Minutes after the droid left, the grey paint bubble then broke apart above the letters, and the text was visible again. According to the local teacher, grabbed from their home in the morning to translate, the strange text meant leave in a local dialect. The occupying force commander looked at the photos of vandalism. This word was appearing all over the city. It had started a few days after the city council had surrendered and then been executed for crimes against the people. The new protectors of the city, 
and almost all of the planet had moved in to help put down any troublemakers and restore peace. The security droids they had brought with them had been enforcing the curfew by shooting anyone after the sun's down each night, but these words were still turning up. What was worse, the standard paint applied to cover them up, to stop the public seeing them, was not working. A second-tier officer had the idea of sticking a board over one of the more prominent texts, and for good measure, had plastered a photo of the logo of the liberating force of almost all the planets so far on the board. The next day, the board had leave painted over the logo, and once again, the text refused to be covered by paint. The commander now started to deploy more droids and troops to cover up the script every day, and the search for the terrorists each night. To no avail. There were not enough troops to patrol the entire city, and new examples kept popping up each morning. High Command was worried. The population could see the sign of resistance to their benevolent rule, and this could not be tolerated. Executions of artists and paint sellers were suggested, but this would play into the hands of the terrorist calligrapher. Analysis of the paint was proving difficult. It was almost as if the paint could tell when it was covered over and burnt its way through the covering paint. Marianne. A third-tier scientist had noticed that the script for the word was identical each time, obviously, meaning the script was being written by the same person. The text was very clean and precise, so obviously an elder person must be involved, as only someone with great learning and years of practice could produce such a consistently clean script. The security forces were putting more and more resources and troops to the capital to find the terrorist calligrapher. Now they had started to detain all teachers and scientists, and force them to write word on a wall to make sure that it did not match the terrorist text. Unfortunately, the technicians designated to paint over the example text soon found that the dreaded word had been painted over the top of the following morning. The first security skimmer to be seen with the word leave on it was found in a vehicle pool the next day. The text covered the entire front of the vehicle, and no paint would stay in place to hide it. The vehicle was ordered broken down for parts before any locals could see it. The next day, a dozen armored skimmers and a flyer were decommissioned for the same reason. But Brightspark, late from the motor pool, had thought of applying heat from a fuser to the paint to see if they could burn it off. The paint caught fire with the heat that etched the metal of the armored skimmer, burning off most of the paint and plexiglass, rendering the vehicle wrecked, but still showing the text on the charred remains of the hull. More resources needed to be focused on the city to catch this terrorist, otherwise the population might rise up and rebel. More skimmers were need to be pulled from the front line. The pesky resistance could still be crushed. Four weeks later, the invaders evacuated to their drop craft, many with leave inscribed on the sides of their craft, or on the armored skimmers hurriedly being loaded onto them. The human ambassador of the neutral Terran Federation smiled. The humans had stayed in their compound for the four months the invasion had been taking place. The rules of conquest were strict here, and unless the government asked for aid, it could not be offered. And this government had been rather stupid in thinking aid would not come, or would come at too high a price, so had not asked for it.
not to say that the ambassador had not done something. So, Chief, uh, the nanobots are all back in storage? Yes, ma'am, uh, all counted and cleaned. I would not have thought that this would have worked as well as it did. The PsyOps chaps did a good job with the original idea, but I would love to find out who told the stupid invaders that the symbol meant leave. That was a stroke of genius. Kilroy would have been proud. Yes, originally the plan was just to confuse and demoralize them, but the leave attribution capped off the whole thing rather nicely. One thing I am wondering about when those dropships heat up the next time they enter an Atmos, what will happen? The ambassador smiled. Oh, uh, nothing good for the idiots on board, I can assure you. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1612. Story number one. The Sons of the Fathers. Written by T and Tungsten. The second intergalactic conference of the sapien species was about to begin. The elected speaker stepped up on the podium. Their speech would be broadcasted throughout all of the known galaxy. But almost every sentient species had been sent at least one or two ambassadors. The chamber was packed. As the speaker raised their speaking organs, the hall went silent. After endless centuries of war, strife, and petty disputes between the species, we have finally found a unifying purpose. It has taken hold of the imaginations of us all. Be they furred, scaled, armored, or even digital. Every ambassador in the chamber stomped their feet, more equivalence and agreement. The one thing that unites us all in this galaxy is our origin. We all have been lifted up or have been created by the same elder species. Now, so many eons ago. Some species think of them as parents. Some as creator gods, others just follow travelers in the lonely void between the stars. They created wonders, like the hyperspace ring network that, uh, so many eons later, remains the backbone of our galactic economy. The Dyson spheres that still produce energy, food, and fuel for almost half of the galactic core. Even the very languages we speak are dialects and derivatives of their galactic common. But as the ancient texts of so many religions state, they were the first, and they were lonely. Life is not uncommon. It arose many times in parallel, and it has also spread naturally many times by void-resistant bacteria or flatworms stowed away on asteroids, waiting to impact a barren world and populate it like so many before. But none of the life forms the forefathers encountered were sapient. None would share their wonders. None could explore the universe with them. So, they took matters into their own hands. They lifted us up, 
whenever they saw the potential, indiscriminately, of origin, shape, or form. And despite being our parents, they welcome us in their midst as equals. It is not known how they went extinct, though there are many theories. Some say they moved on to greater things. Others say that they were very decimated by plagues. Another theory is that they destroyed themselves in their hubris. And there are even those who believe their children eventually rebelled against them and wiped them all out. The history of that age is blurry and warped by fiction, doctrines, false interpretations, and lies. We may never know for certain. Some in the audience grumbled at those words, but they kept their peace for now. This occasion was more important than any religious disputes. The speaker moved on. But you all know these words already. I have given you a similar speech at the first intergalactic conference all those years ago. When we decided to begin this very endeavor that now has come to fruition. The hall went so silent you could hear a pin drop. This was the moment everybody had been waiting for. We have identified five species that were previously thought to have evolved independently from one another, but which in fact share a common genetic origin. These five species, despite their migrations throughout vastly different parts of the galaxy, have evolved on the same planet. It is now believed that they were the first species to have been raised up by our forefathers, because they evolved on the same world as they did. The speaker and their podium floated backwards and made room on the stage for the five ambassadors, who each ascended the ramps from the audience area. The first, the Ekstar, an impressive creature with eight long tentacles, an elongated head and two eyes with bar-shaped pupils. Thanks to Antigrav tech, it swam through the air. They were well known throughout the galaxy for their impressive engineering feats, and they were the most prominent species in the Perseus arm. The second representative was Endan, and it could not have been any more different than the Ekstal. It was a thickly furred beast, with its features hinted at predatory roots, though those predator features were contrasted by a warm, friendly gaze. Despite not having any centralized governments, you could find Endans in almost any corner of the galaxy. They were well-liked because of their loyalty and protectiveness. The ambassador gave nods to some of these closest contacts to the audience. Avrana was the next representative, a large avian species covered in glossy black feathers from tail to beak. It ignored the ramp and chose to fly up onto the stage. It proudly looked down on the audience, as if it had been crowned the Emperor of the Galaxy. The species was well known in the core region for their excellent traders and economists. The members of the fourth species came to the sage inside of a transparent water tank. The body of this representative was completely hairless and streamlined. The name of their species was unpronounceable in any common tongue except for their own. They inhabited many hundred water worlds along the galactic room, but they did not travel much outside their space. 
The ambassador observed the audience with an amused expression. Finally, the fifth and most obscure and secretive species was the Qatar. Like the Endon, it was also furred and quadrupedal, but you could not have confused one for the other. It was slender and walked without making a single sound. It also ignored the ramp and leapt up onto the stage with minimal effort. Its vertical slit pupils wandered unblinkingly over the audience. Many herbivore species in the first rows felt uncomfortable under its gaze. The sight of these five species raised great confusion and a murmur in the audience. Out of all the hundreds of sapient species, these five were supposed to share a genetic history with the forefathers. Except for the Endan and the Qatar, they could not have looked any more different than one another. The podium speaker floated forward again, putting the stop to the commotion in the audience. Your confusion is understandable, but genetic analysis has proven this theory conclusively. And with the map of these five species, we managed to identify which genes are common amongst them all, and also which genes have been inserted by the forefathers in order to make these species more like them. But our discovery was bigger than we thought. We managed to fill the holes with genetic maps discovered in ancient records. And what we could not fill, we rediscovered with evolutionary algorithms. Now it is our time to be the teachers, parents, and friends. And it is only proper that our five honorable ambassadors will be the first to have the honor. The speaker pointed upward. A little crib floated down onto the stage, carried safely on an anti-grab platform. Every eye of all species throughout the galaxy was aimed at it. All shared an expression of shock and wonder. Nobody had expected to actually see it today. The five ambassadors leaned over it, and it arrived in front of them. Inside the crib was a small pinkish-brown creature, completely bald, except for a short, brown stubble on the top of its head. Its eyes were green, surrounded by white. It moved a little, and when it noticed the five strange creatures above it, it began to cry. The hall erupted in noise as everyone who could jumped up from their seats in order to get a better look at the creature. Security shoved back some overly zealous ones who tried to get up on the stage. On stage, the Qatar raised one of her front paws and carefully touched the small creature on its forehead. The other four ambassadors could hear a deep humming emanating from her, more vibration than sound. It only took a second and the infant stopped crying. It raised its arms and grabbed for the soft, hairless pads underneath the fur paw with its five nimble fingers. A high-pitched laugh escaped out of its mouth. For a moment, everyone just watched, captivated by the creature. Finally, the voice of the speaker sounded triumphant when it spoke again. Welcome back, humanity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1613. Story number one. Supplies written by much user such taken. So, the general said, why do we lose the fortress to the humans? We all looked sheepishly at one another. Well, you see, sir, uh, they were better geared. How so? Do we not have the greatest siege guns on the planet? 
Well, uh, technically, yes, but... Uh... The general rudely interrupted. Do we not have the greatest tanks on the planet? They even have their own shielding. Uh, as I was saying, sir, we do technically outclass the humans in every way regarding equipment, but that is hardly mattered against the humans. Um, allow me to explain. How so? I deadpan. Internally, sighing the sigh of every poor grunt, then had to explain something to a hotshot superior. Looking into those poor, innocent eyes, not yet tainted by the absolute horror of having to maintain an M55 multi-purpose auto-carbine, I gazed beyond. I looked past the foolish eyes and looked with pity at the brain that all of our logistical reports so far had seemingly failed to impress anything upon. Knowledge sliding off like water on our hydrophobic uniforms. This was the brain of a man that we had to answer to. The brain of a man that led such a logistically crippled attack that we had literally run out of bullets five weeks into the push. The man that decided that holding a captured fort against humans was a good idea. Well, sir, the humans simply had more reliable and cost-effective weaponry. We hold them all easily for a first few weeks, but then things took a turn for the worse. As you know, he didn't. The vast majority of our weapons are designed to simply have older, worn-out parts be replaced. This works well before blitzkrieg attacks and places with good supply lines, but while under siege, we were cut off. This wouldn't normally be an issue, since there are field repair stations, but their repair stations lack the ability to repair themselves or other repair stations. The general nodded. He was not following... Being able to penetrate 5 millimeters of concrete at 20-kilometer ranges is all well and good. But stocking enough shells to keep up suppressing fire on the enemy artillery positions was hard, and we ran out of shells. That let the humans pull out their own howitzers and start firing on our position. Some stray shrapnel hit the repair stations every once in a while. All right, what does that have to do with anything... Clearly, I had made no progress with my explanation. Maybe I should defect. Yes, sir, the damage compounded over time, and the repair stations became inoperable. We also couldn't protect them underground since they were solar-powered. After that happened, it was just a matter of time before we ran out of replacement parts and we had to flee at night. I haven't the faintest clue how we managed to successfully escape that position. After all... The humans had the ability to keep up pressure for far longer than us, and much, much more efficiently. We frequently overpenetrated their tanks, which, when effective, indicates that we were wasting damage potential by using the all-in-one artillery pieces on their armor. We could not damage their armored units without our M55 carbines, though, so we had no option other than wasting bunker buster shells on tanks. In the end, we were done in by poorly planned out and difficult to maintain equipment. In our rush to outgun the opposition and stay ahead of the arms race, we failed to account for some common setbacks on the field, like supply disruptions or other delays and malfunctions. Silence regained. The general seemed deep in thought. Maybe I'd finally gotten through to him. It sounds to me like you're making excuses. But I'll let you off the hook for now. Uh, restock and get back on the field. Uh, I'll send you new orders soon. Why did I even try? Maybe we can loot some of those uh, AK-47 guns off the enemy soldiers and use those instead of carbines. End of story.
Story number two. Part of Fire, written by Dragonson04. We never expected that accidental impact to happen, which, I suppose, is what makes it an accident. But this one, though, the famous or possibly infamous human named Murphy and his so-called laws came into play. First, the accidental impact, likely a random bit of orbital debris, small enough to get past our normal defenses for such things, but fast enough to do damage. Second, we were in orbit above a moon that was made out of little more than ice, rock, and wind. Third, my entire crew and I are reptilian, not exactly in the purview of those laws, but it helps enforce the point of them. We should not survive for long down on that moon, and that is where we were headed. We scanned for quite a distance around our projected crash site, looking for any signs of hope. Perhaps a cave, where we could set up a heater and wait for rescue. Near the very edge of our scanning range, towards the upper pole of the moon, there was a blip, a small atmospheric research station. Was it currently occupied? Was there any chance that there was someone there to help? Not likely, but we directed our hope for survival at that blip and sent a general distress signal to it. The crash, when it did happen, was harsh. We bounced along the surface of the moon, digging out craters along a great distance. The entire bottom of the ship was nearly peeled off by the time we came to a stop. Our main power supply was fading rapidly, and the engines were leaking everything that could be leaked from them. Our little survival heater wouldn't last until the sun went down on that. All the same... The eight of us huddled around it and hoped that our signal had found someone in that tiny station. The wind was a constant presence, moaning through the new holes in our ship and stealing away almost all the heat from even the smallest gap in our little circle around that heater. Time passed, and a few of our crew fell unconscious as the heater started to lose power. With every heartbeat, it felt a little more hopeless. I'm not sure when I fell unconscious, but the next thing I knew, I was being jostled awake. The regular cadence of the bipedal footfalls seemed to be underneath me. Hey, 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 wake up! You need to wake up! The auto-translator picked up the language easily enough, but I had never heard that deep of a voice before. Uh, oh, I managed to croak out. My name is Brian. I am a human researcher from Earth. I was assigned to the atmospheric station on this moon. I picked up your distress signal and set out. Uh, if I had known that you were reptiles, I would have been much faster. It was then when I realized where I was. I was zipped into the human's outer clothing, between the human's inner clothes and the outermost layer. He was supporting my back legs and tail with the crossed arms. Then I realized that I was deliciously warm. For any reptilian species, a heater is a must on any journey. One can never know what temperature one might run into on an unknown world or in a survival situation. But this human, simply by being human, was like the highest grade heater set to the absolute perfect setting. What about my crew? I asked, genuinely worried. They'll be fine. I have a covered trailer on my snow machine with the heater in it. Seemed like a good thing to bring along for any survivors of the crash on this ice cube. I loaded your crew up as quickly as I could while I started to warm you up. I wanted to wake you up first 
as you have an officer's uniform, Brian said very rapidly. Well, Brian, it seems I owe you my life, as does my crew. Oh, uh, don't worry about that. I'm not looking for a life debt. I was in a position to help. And uh, so I did. So uh, would you like to ride back with your crew and help them wake up? Or would you like to stay where you are? I'll ride with my crew. Thanks. It took three full weeks, by Brian's count, for this rescue ship to arrive. All the time we enjoyed his hospitality in that small station. I learned from my new friend that my kind, the Islid, are apparently the exact size, shape, and look of a lesser animal from the human homeworld called an iguana. But with different eyes, as my friends put it. We talked about this, that, and the other, sometimes nothing at all. My entire crew and I privately swore that our next male offspring would be named after this human. Humans, such strange aliens, for a death world species, they certainly have an inborn capacity for unflinching kindness and generosity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1614 Story number one, Convergent Evolution, written by Kaiser 5243. Many biologists worth solium will tell you that while the universe is massive and appears chaotic, the creation and evolution of life is actually quite predictable. It's simple, really. Fates that are effective in their surrounding environment get passed on while the rest are discarded. You'll notice in your travels that while there may be a slight regional differences in color or size, many species in our galactic republic are in fact very similar, even though their evolution occurs on planets galaxies apart. We know this theory as convergent evolution. The simple fact is certain biological designs work best in certain conditions, and given enough time, evolution will naturally fine-tune life to best survive, resulting in the repetitive evolutionary trees. Planets with high atmospheric pressure results in a soft-body beings better suited than those with rigid skeletons. Insectoid beings thrive on high oxygen atmospheres, while those deep underground develop large white eyes designed to trap the faintest light. Crystallized beings are common in irradiated planets, and don't even get me started on the disproportionate amount of crustaceans. I sometimes think that the end of times will only be witnessed by crabs. Using this prediction pattern, it's obvious that once the most efficient form is reached, evolution ships focus from physical survivability to increase intelligence leading evidentially to sapient life. This is what we look for. Hundreds of thousands of probes float through the space, waiting and listening for the inevitable call of a new species trying to reach out to the stars. Once the call is received, an investigation begins and contact is made by the species most similar to them in the Republic and are welcomed to the galactic stage with open arms. All except for one. You all know the myth of the Homo Giganticus, giant humanoid creatures that are said to have ruled across the stars with their vast empires constantly at war with each other and subjugating every sentient race until none could stand against them except their own kind. Legends of Ymir, ruling from his throne on an ice planet so remote no star could warm it, waging war against the Titan King Kronos, 
who understood that manipulation of gravity affected how things pass through time, tell of the whole constellations being destroyed while the Kraken sent his people to the lowest depths of the deepest oceans to find new slaves. Nowhere was safe, and those that did not live in constant fear were already dead. According to the stories you've been told, these monsters were defeated when all the other races joined forces and rose up dethroning our oppressors and forming the Republic you now know. I'm here to tell you that this is a fabrication by the Republic to hide the truth. The truth being that no matter the conditions, evolution will find a way to thrive, and when the giants did fall, it was not us. Those titans attempted to dominate nature itself, and in response, nature made something that would show them exactly how weak they were. The story started slowly. Tales of creatures similar in build to the giants, but only a fraction of their size. Nobody can agree where they originated, but it is universally agreed that the fall of Dread Queen Gaia was the beginning of the end of the giants. They found themselves facing something new in the universe, a creature evolved to survive under the conditions that they themselves had created. They never stood a chance. Nature's answer to these titanic tyrants was called human. Unlike other species that evolved to dominate their species biome, humans seemed to be able to live anywhere. The deep oceans were no longer safe. The castles of ice and fire were no longer protected those inside. The giants created an environment of war, but the humans evolved to thrive in it. They exploded across the stars, raining violence upon their enemies with such a brutal efficiency that whole races of giants fell before they could form a counterattack. The war raged for millennia, and with each liberation, word spread that these humans did not fight the giants to enslave us themselves, as we had been told, but they fought simply because it was right. They fought and died by the millions for us simply because they thought that it was the right thing to do. And by the end of the war, both the humans and the giants fought to extinction. Now, I am sure you are wondering why I stand before you telling tall tales of mythical creatures that probably never existed. Tales of giants are used to scare children into behaving, and their defeat at the hands of the Republic is the official story. I would be willing to bet that not one person in this room had even heard of a human until right now. So, why am I wasting your time when the Republic hunts us and every second we waste is another second the Chancellor has his hands around the throats of our people? The answer is quite simple. A new voice is calling out to the stars. Not just one, but hundreds. After 700 years of silence, while the Chancellor imposed his authoritarian rule over those in the Republic. After centuries of system after system falling to its knees before him, a chorus of voices called to each other across the void. We fought this evil as best as we could, but as looked down on shattered remains of the resistance before me, I'll admit that I had lost hope. Evolution, however, does not need hope. Nature is brutal and unforgiving, as we have learned over these dark centuries. But I will tell you now that we have not been fighting in vain. The deaths and sacrifices we have made in the fight against tyranny has not been for nothing. We answered 
their calls. We connected the distant planets together. We have shown them the state of the universe they wished to join, and they were disappointed. They stopped reaching out to the void, and I thought our last hope had abandoned us to our fate. But a new song has begun, not one of curiosity or wonder from a race wondering if it's alone in the universe, discordant and chaotic. This song is simple, unified in focus. It's both a message to our oppressors and a song of hope to those of us that still fight. Humanity has returned and they beat the drums of war. End of story. Story number two. An unprotected warp. Written by Rebel Hero. Captain, the human didn't put on its anti-warp gear before we jumped. The first mate reported, antennae shaking. Sad to hear. Prepare the coffin and jettison it. The captain responded sadly. No, sir. The human... Nothing's happened to it. Didn't go insane from seeing infinity in the stars. The captain shuddered, and the first mate responded with a loud, chittering noise of fear. The two rarish gestures of their species, happening simultaneously. The captain stilled itself and slowly picked up its translator. Bring me to the human, it said slowly. Jessica sat with her eyes covered, a cool, wet rag on her forehead, deftly maneuvering a small cube she always carried with her in her palm. She breathed slowly and deeply, then when she heard the chime of the observation window, she slowly sat up. More tests, she asked, her voice slow and her words drawn out. Human Jessica, no more tests for now, only questions. The translated voice of the captain came over the speakers. Do you mind if I lie down while I answer them? A click which Jessica knew to be an affirmative sound, though untranslatable. She laid back down slowly. What happened, human Jessica? Reports state that you were not wearing your anti-warp suit. No one thought to check that the suit issued to me was for a human. It was not. I couldn't get into it, she groaned, going up slightly. She felt horribly exposed, like a goldfish in a bowl. Being the only human on a mixed-species vessel had some very embarrassing downsides. They just didn't understand the human need to always wear clothes. That is unfortunate. The quartermaster will be flayed as punishment for endangering your life. Jessica bolted upright to protest, but both a wave of nausea and a shrill sound she knew to be the equivalent of a shh cut her off. A standard punishment for their species. They will recover quickly. Now... You must tell us what happened during the warp. All reports suggest that you are the only living being to survive a warp unprotected. The translated voice sounded hurried, anxious. Once I realized that the suit wasn't going to fit, I knew that I was going to die. I went through the seven stages of human grief in about the span of a minute. As the warp tunnel opened, I crawled into the locker. I figured that it would make my remains easier to recover and clean, given that I was sure to be turned into paste. But the acceleration, I felt, wasn't much more than my favorite roller coaster back on Earth. It was intense, for sure. Left me plastered to the wall, unable to move. Just when I thought I would black out, there was nothing. Nothingness itself. Pure, infinite, void. 
made my head hurt trying to comprehend it. That's it. That's all you saw, the voice sounded incredulous, almost angry. Yes, sir. I mean, technically, I didn't see anything at all. None of my senses worked. No sight, sound, touch, smell, taste, nothing. But I was conscious. I know that much. There was a long silence. How, how is that possible? So many have died in warp accidents. Their eyes, their brains exploded upon warp exit. Those that survived are driven mad and usually end up dead soon after. How, of all things, did a human make it out unscathed? Now the voice was angry. I, I, I don't know. I just stopped thinking about it and when my head began to hurt. If Jessica had been able to see through the observation window, she would have watched as the two most feared and respected members of the crew, the captain and first mate, faint from shock. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1615 Story Double One Prisons Written by Monarch 357 It was just dumb luck, really. A good shot, target down, leap across two rooftops, down a ladder, into an alleyway, and there's three human officers, all pointing rifles at me. No part of the plan. Drop the gun, put your hands up and kneel. We won't hurt you. The soldier, I assumed to be the squad leader, told me. I spent more than a few years total in prisons across the galaxy. And I wasn't going back there. No way. I guess the squad saw me eyeing the surroundings for an escape. Then they were cautiously raising their rifles at me. The man spoke again. Listen, we don't want to hurt you. But if you're going to do this the hard way, then we're going to have to. His expression noticeably hardening. Fuck you. What else could I say? What else could I do? I ran. The notable clicks of the safety switched off, echoing in the alleyway behind me. But gunfire didn't follow. This wasn't going to be much of a chase if they didn't even try. I turned and tried to jump upwards, but the officers were anticipating it. An odd, sharp-burning sensation spread through my lower back, and I hit the ground. Wind knocked out of my lungs. The next thing I knew, everything went dark. When I woke up, I couldn't immediately tell how long it had been. My throat was dry, but I, oddly enough, was free to move. The cushiony, relatively anyway, bedding beneath me was another departure from the most of my time in prisons across the galaxy. These were different. I heard a voice over the speaker with nobody inside the room. Are you awake? The voice began. No hint of hostility or contempt. To me, this was obviously a trap, intent to soften me up before the hammers of punishment struck. I wasn't new to this game. I'm not going to talk. Whatever you do, get it over with already. Bluntness will get you nowhere, sir, the intercom continued. His voice was maddeningly gentle. Whatever you went through out there, you won't in here. I'm not here for therapy, jackass. Well, if you won't speak, then we can just sit here for a few hours until you get processed. Your call. We sat there in an oddly friendly silence for hours. I contemplated their odd kindness. Any other jail would have by now thrown me in solitary confinement, tried sensory deprivation, or just straight up resorted to physical torture. Compared to the worst I'd been through in the past, this was a brief vacation. I would almost feel bad breaking out. The humans 
didn't seem so bad. End of story. Story number two. Myths and Consequences. Written Erebosite. The fat trader finally got what he was after. He'd been sitting in this bar for hours now, waiting for someone interesting to walk in. Preferably someone who had some good information on lucrative deals. But really, even just someone that could entertain him with a good enough. When the human walked in, he couldn't have been happier. You rarely meet humans in this cluster, after all. It only took the promise of a free drink to get the human to talk to him. And thus, there they sat. The human somewhat nervous-looking, the trader with excitement in his bulging eyes. So, he said, as he gave him a glass of beer, what brings a human this far from home? Oh, uh, just some personal business, sir. I just have some promises to fulfill. Promises? the fat trader asked. He knew from the few short times that he had met this biped that they had a lot of foreign concepts. He didn't quite understand most of them. Yeah, promises. How do you explain it? Um, When you make a promise, you say that you will definitely do something. As the human talked, he seemed to get a little more comfortable. Yet his eyes still zagged around the bar, like prey animal checking its surroundings. When I say something, I also intend to do it. Why would you need a different way to say it? Because my species lies, my friend. The human laughed quietly. His black hair fell in front of his eyes. That I have heard of before. It seems unnecessarily complicated, if you ask me. Do you humans have more of these, what do you call it, concepts? I think the word that you're looking for is myth. It's basically something most humans pretend to believe in. Uh, a shared lie of some kind. Why would you believe in these things if they were all lies? It seems asinine. Realizing this might offend his table guest, he quickly added, I hope you don't take that the wrong way. I'm just not wired to understand this. No problem, brother. You can't fight biology. His voice was deep and reassuring, but trembled a little. Humans living together in big groups had to invent these shared myths to effectively get things done. Everyone in our society has a different opinion. You guys are a bit more uniform, so you don't need all those silly little lies. So what are some of these myths? The fat trader asked. He wasn't particularly fat for his species, but to anyone else, he seemed like a slug. His legs were barely visible under the thick layers of meat. See, as no other species could pronounce the name of the slug-like creature, they just named him the fat trader. Hmm. We humans believe that we are connected somehow, if a member of our clan gets attacked, we believe that the clan has the shared responsibility to go and help them. The closer the person is to a human, the fiercer they will protect them, even if it costs our lives. That seems sensible, I suppose. Humans aren't particularly strong, no claws and all that. Perhaps you can find strength in numbers. See? You get it, the human exclaimed. It is quite straightforward. We protect those we consider ours, and we get to protected by them. Isn't it dangerous to do this every time someone is threatened? Stressful, too. I'm not sure I could manage. The trader seemed genuinely impressed. Surprise! Uh, we have myths for that, too. The human seemed a little too animated about the subject. His energy was radiating through the room. Humans believe that everything will work out in the end. If you just keep going, you'll get there. We keep the hope high and expect our efforts to deliver good results. You really believe that? Most of my children are already smarter than that. 
the enormous body of the trader shuddered with laughter. He didn't even hide how stupid he thought these humans were anymore. Oh no, it's a lie. We all know that. Then why say it? If you repeat it enough, you'll start to believe it. Then why quit? If you believe everything will be okay, it reduces the stress severely. Hmm, interesting. But if you can't protect your clan anymore, if the damage has already been done? That's where it gets interesting, actually, uh... Some believe our clanmates will go to a perfect place after death. Sadly, we can't reach it when we're alive. I personally, however, don't believe in all that crap. He paused. We also have the myth of vengeance. The human lent a great gravitas to the last word. The bit nervous. He didn't quite know if he should continue. Vengeance? The slug asked impatiently. Explain. The belief that you can right a wrong by doing unto aggressors... What has been done unto you? An eye for an eye. It doesn't really work as far as I can tell. It only makes the situation worse. The slug had gone bored by now. These myths seemed pointless, unimportant, so we decided to change the subject. Interesting. Thank you for indulging me in these foreign concepts. Now, I must ask again, what brings you here? The human looked down, his emotions hidden deep within. He responded calmly, yet the tone was clearly an aggressive tone. Two years ago, some fat, slimy bastard kidnapped my wife and children during a raid. I came here looking for them. The atmosphere at the table dropped, almost as if the hole in the ship had suddenly depressed the room. The fat trader was smart enough to realize that this wasn't good news. Carefully, he prodded further. I am sorry to hear that. Did you find them? Yes. In the logs of the mine some planet away from here. They're dead. I also found the name of the person who sold them to that horrible place. His voice was shaking. Slowly, he put his right hand above the table, a gun pointed at the traitor. Immediately, several guards sitting at nearby tables jumped out of their seats, hand and holster. This does not seem like a smart idea. Red is one against six. Put your gun away, and I'll forget this. One against six? <laughs> I just explained how humans always protect each other. Did you forget that already? The slug's bulging eyes could see it now. Everywhere in the bar, humans had been secretly positioned in spots where they could react immediately. As soon as these guards had sprung into action, they had too. They had outmatched the guards. Most of the slug's hirelings stood frozen in ice, feeling the human blasters pointing in their backs. Even if you kill me, you won't leave the planet alive. The port authorities will not stand for unnecessary violence. You and your little friends don't stand a chance. The human smiled deviously, his yellowish teeth bare, knowing that it was all going exactly as he had planned. Oh, don't worry about me. I'm sure I'll be all right. He winked in the most arrogant way possible. The tension quickly kept mounting. This was happening. This was not good. What is this? Vengeance? You said yourself that it doesn't help. You have nothing to gain. Vengeance? The human asked, as it hadn't even come to his mind. In silence, he climbed up to the table and sat down on there, right in front of the slug. Now, at the same eye height, he put his gun right up onto the bloated forehead. The trader signed to his men not to act. No, this isn't vengeance. If I wanted vengeance, I would have captured you and all of those you hold dearly. I would have slowly murdered them in front of you, cutting them open one by one. Then, when they were all 
dead. I would torture you. I would piss in your wounds. I would keep going until you begged for death, and even a little after. Then I would dump all of your blood-covered corpses in some hole in a planet no one has ever heard of, and leave them there to rot. The human spat the words out, his face is red-hot with anger. But I like to think I am better than that, so no, this is not vengeance. Scared and panicking, the fat trader looked him in the eyes and asked, Then, why are you doing this? If this isn't vengeance, what is this? This? Oh my! I forgot to tell you about this myth. How stupid of me. He slapped his left hand against his forehead, as if to laugh at his own stupidity, but his eyes were unamused, determined. He continued, This is not vengeance, my dear slave trader friend. This is justice. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1616 Story number two, The Promise, written by Pickpocket. When I was little, very, very little, there was a story my father told me, of strange people with featureless faces and heavy metal bodies, monsters who would lurk in the shadows out beyond the endless dark, beings of twisted hatred and merciless violence. He would tell me, if I wasn't home before dark, that they would come he would say that I had to be quiet and very, very still when he said so. I had to follow instructions without question. When the Shivari came, with their chains and whips and instruments of torture, I watched as they dragged my friends, my neighbors, my father away. I had to accept that I would never see them again. And it hurt. But my mother told me another story. A story about a rock. A monument to this inevitable fate. Carved on its surface were ancient words, words which supposedly set forth a mandate of dominion. In time, the Shivari would be overthrown, but in place of liberty, we instead found enslavement at another's hands. We suffered and died, our numbers dwindling one by one. Overlords changed, and still the cycle repeated. Still the takers took, and we the conquered suffered. Eventually, I too was taken, a shackle around my leg and binding my throat. I was driven into the cramped hot depths of a mine far, far away from a homeland that I'd once known. I watched as a thousand different species toiled and died in the endless dark, and I made peace with never seeing the sun again. And yet, in the suppressive dark, I found yet another storyteller, one who sat beneath the poor lighting of our barracks and sang of an old friend called Mar-En, who long, long ago made a promise, one they carved into the very stone of the world. As months turned to years and years to decades, still the singer with her strange and even shifting hair would sing about her promise, sing in that soulful, melodic tone, a tone that wound its way into my mind, convincing me of its truth. It too convinced more than me. Others took the song to heart. They raised their voices and their picks. They were swiftly massacred and left to rot in the hot, claustrophobic dark of the tapped-out mine. And then the day came when the last rain ran dry, and our masters, the Zinfara, or maybe the Urkus, 
wished to crush our spirits once more. They dragged us before the mighty stone they called the pillar of supplication, and made us kneel, offered many, many words of their superiority, their greatness. I think they did not look closely enough. Their eyes sat at the foot of the great dais, its ancient stone littered with broken manacles, the monolith itself, a single most beautiful sight that I had ever laid my eyes upon. If the singer had not rose to run and touch its cold black surface, I think I would have instead. I forced myself to look away when they removed her hand for the offense. Yet she did not lament her loss. Instead, when I asked her about it, she smiled, leant in, and told me of the heroic Maren once more. Told me that the stone had spoken to her. I thought her driven to madness, but she insisted the stone spoke to her. It wanted its words to be heard, to be read by all. She told me it was no symbol of right to rule, but a warning. A promise. I did not believe her, but she was right. After that day, we grew closer as I aided her in her duties. We spoke of our homelands, our people's histories. She told me that the Maren was not a who, but a what. She told me about a grim sailors on an ocean of blood, of a promise made to her forebearers and handed down. She, in time, told me what the stone had said. Where the spark of liberty falters, and the cruel oppress the weak, where none dare speak of you, reach out and take my offered hand. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Where no other dares, I shall speak for the voiceless. Where no other cares, I shall lift for the helpless. Where no other shall, I shall bleed for the defenseless. I swear upon ten thousand broken shackles. Shortly after, they came. The faceless, nameless monsters from the dark abyss. They came with great weapons, and I feared that they would have a massacre. Yet they left the slaves unarmed, mercilessly tore through our masses, but did not lift a finger towards us. Then I feared that we had once again traded masters, but they shattered our chains. Then I thought they were an uprising, come to doom us all to retribution. For when I heard their name, I understood. My dear singer's promise had been kept. The Marines had come. They came and they sailed upon an ocean of blood. They came with guns and ships, and they tore across the galaxy flying a simple standard, a golden star on a black field. They came to bleed for the defenseless and speak for the voiceless. In the decades that followed, these nameless, faceless soldiers faded away once more. But the monument to their promise grew. To this day, in the centorial plaza, you can see the hundred thousand shackles the brave Marines offered at the foot of their promised stone. In the council halls of the fair union, their words carved in stone spread to every corner of our galaxy and told to every child. For they left us with a promise. They promise that we must keep in their absence. We must speak for the voiceless, lift for the helpless, and 
if need be, bleed for the defenseless. That is the legacy of the nameless, faceless Marines, the human pyre of liberty. End of story. Story number one. Mercy is for the weak. Written by Dragonson04. Our most hated enemy has finally beaten us. After a full century of drawn-out conflict, they had finally taken our whole world. We were utterly beaten. Barely 10% of our population remained alive and in a state to actually repopulate. 40% were so physically or mentally damaged, they would never be able to make the next generation of our species. The remaining 50% were dead. Cold and dead on countless worlds. Moons and in the void of space on countless destroyed ships. I have no idea how many of the enemy died, but it obviously wasn't enough to turn the war in our favor. Walking along under the careful guard of ten others, I finally got a look at one of them. Hard to believe, I know, but in a century, I had never seen one of them outside of propaganda materials. They were head and shoulders shorter than us, but with a mass and bulk that put us to shame. A product of where they evolved, or so I understand. We were almost ethereal in comparison, being tall and thin reptilians, their powered armor, or battle suits, or whatever you want to call them, squeaked and hissed as they moved, the boots shaking on the ground with every step. I almost felt a rhythm, a kind of syncopated beat. Thud, 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 hiss, thud, squeak, thud. It was soothing, in a way. The sound gave me something to focus on, other than my rapidly approaching demise. We neared a fairly large base of theirs, likely to be interrogated and then executed. I steeled my resolve, while a few of the others didn't. They started to blubber and beg. I held my silence by pure willpower, for fear that I would break and join them. We were escorted to a landing area, and one of our own ships was on the ground. The engines were primed and it was ready to leave. Our escort dispersed. What is this? Some kind of trick, I shouted. One of them turned back a half-step and said, You are beaten. There is nothing to be gained by killing the few of you left. Take that and go home. His voice sounded odd through his suit's auditory amplifier system. What is the meaning of this? I shouted again. It is not a trick. It is a mercy. Maybe in the future your kind will be wiser. Go home, find a mate. And teach your children of your mistakes. See to it that they do not make the same ones you did. Mercy? Spare us your pity and mercy. Mercy is for the weak, I shrieked. Which is exactly why we are showing it to you. You are beaten and a hard one piece is finally happening after one hundred years. We are the stronger, you are the weaker. Mercy is indeed for the weak. Because mercy is what the weak need. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1617 Story number one. Lucky, written by Katani77. This is the last time I'll be able to send a transmission, I fear. I wanted the Galactic Alliance to know the truth of what happened to Procyon 5, and not some political hack's interpretation. 
It was a slaughter. The only reason I'm able to record this is because my life pod was ejected many seconds before the Heragon. Here, a gone. Damn, translator busted again. Armada vaporized the fleet within a minute. Fortunately, they fared little better, and hope is on the way. I may just get lucky again. For the record, my name is Senior Chief Engineer Zolitz. Zolitz. If I survive, I'm going to throttle the Arcadian who made this damned translator. I was assigned to Warp Systems Architecture aboard the warpship designated 0X-95, Seren. We were called to respond to an emergency because lit by the Arn. The translator got that one right for once. Those cold-blooded Karaz got themselves in some trouble, had we known. By the time we responded, it was far too late to save them. We were already next on the menu, however. The fleet that sat before us numbered in the thousands. There was no chance. The Heragon was preparing an invasion of the Quadrant of the Galaxy, and the poor feckers of the Da'an expeditionary ship happened to find themselves at the Heragon rally point, as did we. Initial scans indicated a Class IX weapon system, particle beams, antimatter torpedoes, relativistic kinetic weapons, and fusion beams. Millions of gigawatts of energy made even the starfighters. Our ship was considered Class Seven. We never stood a chance. These monsters were carrying on fighters to what we, the Galactic Alliance, would consider orbital defense class weaponry. Why were they here with such firepower? We only ever encountered the Heragon when a random trader or diplomat ventured into the Alliance territory to likely engage in espionage. They were from deep core of the galaxy, far outside the Alliance borders. We hadn't even begun to really explore this quadrant of the galaxy. The first salvo of one of their frigates dropped our shields to nearly nothing. A core breach was imminent with the second. We managed to take out one of the frigates and a few fighters with EMP rounds, but there was no way that we were going to be anything but space slag. Captain Carlon ordered all hands abandoned ship, and I happened to be standing right next to an escape pod when the order came across the neural net. I jumped in, hit the button, and prayed to Dereth that I was fast enough. As my pod ejected, the Seren was hit with a single fusion beam, only theoretical at that point within the Alliance. And it was vaporized. There wasn't even debris to speak of. The fighters of the Heragon didn't even bother to shoot the life pods down. I assume they decided to let us slowly suffocate in space in a quadrant that even the Galactic Alliance would be hard-pressed to reach. Or use us as bait. It was at this moment the pod's limited senses detected a few dozen jump signatures. More meat to the slaughter. Sensor systems offline, power systems critical, two minutes of usable methane remaining. What I saw next will haunt me for the rest of my life. At least two dozen ships, massive in size, jumped into my view. The largest Terragon battleship was dwarfed by the largest of the incoming ships. The design I had never seen before in any Galactic Alliance fleet. My communicator system still had enough power to hear the new aliens begin communication. This is Admiral O'Riordan of the Terran Navy. We received a distress call from this location and found you instead. Since you are obviously a military fleet, we'll let you shoot first if you're feeling lucky. 
The Heragon fleet opened fire with all of their weapons. A blinding glow of missiles, beams of light and heat radiated through the silence of space. This, uh, Terran Navy's shields barely registered any of it. Even the weapons that were able to pierce the shields exploded harmlessly against the silver ship's hulls. I see ya. Our turn. Came the Admiral's reply before the larger ship began dropping fighters and the frigates started pulsing blue streaks of light towards the Heragon fleet. One minute of usable methane remaining. And just like that, the Heragon were gone. Vaporized was just too simple of a word of what I observed. They just stopped existing. I couldn't see the entire sortie, but I don't think a single ship was lost from this Terran navy. My thoughts began to grow cloudy. At least, this threat from the Heragons was eliminated. Hopefully the Terrans will... find... mass. Life support failed. Hey, O'Malley, I think we got some fire breathers here. The sailor quipped as he dragged the last of the detected life pods. Breathable atmosphere detected. Opening life pod. You're right, man. The bipedal stranger spoke as consciousness returned. The translator seemed to be already adapted to their language. We scanned your life pod and made a bubble of atmosphere around your pods so they could be open safely. I don't know if you can understand me, but you're safe now. Those slimy bastards are dust now. As I came to, I saw several bipedal aliens that I had never seen before. Their faces weren't vastly different from the goal in appearance, but they were rather more pink and wearing what seemed to be breathing masks. Where, where am I? I stated to the alien observing me. You're safe. My name is Brigitte O'Malley of the Terran Navy Hospital Ship Refuge, and we're going to see to it that you and your crew get home okay. She checked her data device and turned back to me to say, We recovered 13 pods from the wreckage bearing your biosigns. I'm sorry for your losses of your crew. What should we call you? Epilogue. The Galactic Alliance warmly accepted the Terrans, or humans as they preferred, into the folds of our community. Of the 180 crew members of the Seren, only five survived, including myself, Chief Navigator Wolin, crewmate Tyrak, Quartermaster Tokaline, and, and a pilot named Cormine. The Alliance will be forever in debt to the Terrans for saving our kin. It would later be deemed that the humans had achieved a level 14 weaponry system, an equally staggering power output from a dozen or so worlds that they had colonized. In theory, it is the hostility of their own world, a demon-class planet on the other side of civilized space, that drove them to prioritize weaponry such. Either way, they are now the protectors of the Alliance, and we are all the better for it. Testimony at the Historical Archive of Kafan, Galactical Standard Year 8956, by Ambassador Zolitz of Acadia Prime. End of story. Story number two. Mad Science. Written by Average Cake Enjoyer. Mad Science means never stopping to ask, what's the worst thing that could happen? Maxim 14. So you are telling me that you, Daisy, changed ten antimatter warheads to an asteroid and asked permission to, uh, in your words, sling it at the alien bastards? Adams asked, a mouthful of chips. Yeah, Jamie dejectedly said, taking another swig of a drink. 
And you're mopey because they obviously said no. Yeah. Adams pinched the bridge of his nose. You're aware that each of those warheads could flatten the country and then some, right? But that's the point. I mean, they declared war on us first, so it's only fair that we get to bomb them. Right? You can't obliterate a bladder because they got all pissy at us, he said, while tipping a bag of chips upside down, giving it a shake. Just let the diplomatic goons smooth it out. The only thing we did was the galactic equivalent of a parking ticket anyway. They declared war. War! They're harmless, dude. I doubt that they could scratch the paint of the ships even if they tried, he scoffed. Waving her bottle around haphazardly, she yelled, But they declared war! It's not fair! Sighing, he gave her a few pats on the head. There, there, you'll get your chance soon, I'll promise. Okay, she said, giving Adams an uneven smile before her head hit the table unceremoniously. Then a dull thud echoing around the empty missile. And uh, that's enough of that, he said with a chuckle, taking her bottle and sliding it across the table. Adams sat at his desk, he gazed, poring over the book in front of him. To him, this was bliss, peaceful silence spreading the air while he lounged around, reading his book. Nothing could ever ruin this for him. A distant shout came from behind his closed door, Adam! Letting out a groan, he slammed his head onto his desk. I guess I spoke too soon, huh? Not even a few seconds later, his door swung open. Jamie standing in the middle of the doorway, a victorious look plastered on her face. I did it! Do I even want to ask? He said while reaching for a bottle of ibuprofen, preparing for an impeding headache that he was bound to get. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you anyways. He exasperatedly waved at her to continue. All right, go on then. Taking a few moments to rummage through her bag, she eventually pulled out a small canister with a window, a grey liquid smashing about inside. Holding it above her head, she yelled, Behold my greatest creation! What? You aren't impressed? She asked, head tilted. You made that? His eyebrows furrowed in confusion, clearly not expecting this. It looks like sludge. Not just any sludge, look, she said, prying open the lid and dropping a piece of candy she had into it. Adam saw the candy splat harmlessly into the liquid, the lolly, just floating in it serenely, opening his mouth to say something about it being anticlimactic. He did a double take as he saw the goo eat the candy. Did it just, uh, yep, I made some nanites. You made great goo, he squeaked out, his voice going up an octave. Yeah, are you proud of me, she said, giving him a winning smile. An uncomfortable silence filled the air around him. Get the feck out of my room, he deadpanned. Her face fell at his words. What? W what did I do wrong? I don't want to be responsible for the mountain of paperwork I'll end up getting if you feck around with that and do something dumb. Like what? If you spill any of that, the whole ship kaput gone. And I don't know about you, but I would like to keep on living, thank you very much. Come on, it's not that bad. A voice trailed off, suddenly becoming meek. It is the band weapon! The bandit, the galaxy bandit, even the eggheads who invented it, bandit. Taking a deep breath, he buried his face in his hands just to, just to get rid of it. Please? Fine, she grumbled, putting the canister back in her bag as she turned towards the door. 
I'll go throw them away then. And for God's sake, don't forget to deactivate the fecking nanites first, yeah? We shouted after her. And close my door on your way out. She sheepishly scratched her head, keeping her gaze firmly locked on the door. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.